ready to take a ride, grab your coffee, and strap yourself in. If you listen, I can hear God's plan. Because the show is about to begin. You're listening, you're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. All right, folks, we're going to jump on in. Uh, This is a live program Friday, June 30th, 2023. Brother Timothy, welcome aboard, my friend. I'm good. How are you? Hey, doing <laughs> well, I'm glad to be aboard. Yes, sir. I hope Mama is doing okay. She is. All right. Hey, you're a good son. Um, God will bless you because you blessed your Mama. And so, praise the Lord. Um, folks, uh, this is a program I've been wanting to do ever since I came across an audio, Brother Timothy, a few months ago on YouTube. And uh, I was uh, researching... Um, Giants and uh, Canaanite altars. I had heard that somewhere. And I came across an interview. And it was only a partial interview. And uh, I wasn't even sure who, who the interviewer was or your name at that point. But I was so struck by the uh, interview that I said, i got to find the full version. And I searched some more. I did. And lo and behold, I find out that this interview uh, was done back in 2013. Uh, with yourself, Timothy Bentz, and a uh, podcaster named Rob Skiba, which I know. Uh, of course, Rob went home to be with Jesus. But I'm so thankful for the interview he did with you, somewhere around 2013, I think it was, on um, a special mission that God sent you on to Jekyll Island. We'll talk a little bit about that and some other things. But uh, I listened to the whole thing, my friend. I was just blown away. I said... Praise God for this interview. This is a story I've never heard before, and it's timely too. So I uh, want to thank thank you for being willing to come on tonight. And uh, would you like to open us up in prayer tonight, my friend? Sure. Father, I just ask your anointing to be upon us for your perfect will to engage with us that we sit down in our spot in the heavenlies with you we ask your presence to be ever ever with us and i pray that you would direct our conversation and direct our steps into your perfect will we ask that the discussion today would be beneficial fruitful and helpful for your glory and kingdom as well as for those that listen to it in jesus name amen friends again welcome aboard we've got timothy bentz here with us today, and uh, what an honor it is. Timothy, uh, from what I've learned about you and your ministry, I would have to say you probably fall in the category of um, not only an evangelist for Jesus, but a prayer walker. Um, Would you term some of the stuff that you've done as prayer walking? Oh, I'm familiar with the term. I think everybody should be a prayer walker. Um, I think we're all called to pray. I've had a long history of learning principles that relate to praying over land as well as people and places and the connection between place and what God's doing with people. But I I never started out saying that's what I am. Um, I just felt like I went through a kind of a metamorphosis with prayer where I, I prayed often when I was younger, but then I one day thought, I don't think I'm praying what Jesus is praying. And when I began asking for more wisdom on how to pray what he was praying, I, it, I found that he does this a lot. He prays for the earth as well as us very often. So, 
Yes, indeed. Yes, sure, indeed. Uh, I think you and I, uh, I mentioned to you briefly before, uh, I had an opportunity to work with the late man of God, uh, Henry Groover, who was um, an amazing personality. He uh, was called in the ministry as a young man, and God began to send him out on these missions to walk various parts of the world where terrible things had happened. Uh, and he would come on about once a year. The rest of the time, he was usually on the road. And if uh, not overseas, uh, he would be going through the churches in America when he'd come back for a brief time and share some testimonies from road trips to Asia. But, you know, he would walk uh, cursed land, places of uh, human sacrifice, witchcraft, altars. And I said, man, this is like Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, what an adventure. And then fast forward to 2023, I'm listening to some of the stories you were telling on the interview about where God sends you to places uh, for strategical prayer. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Uh, tell me, um, what was it like when the Lord spoke to you and uh, gave you this assignment to go up to the infamous Jekyll Island? How did that come about? Uh, it started out with a trip to Europe. I went to several places in Europe where similar things were. Um, I, I don't go looking for defilement or iniquity, but I sometimes feel like I'm directed to it. Um, so if I hear about something going on that's current, I often uh, at least inquire about it. I also find that often these places where these things have occurred are have been repeated throughout history. So if you get familiar with a spot that's got some problems that keep recurring, it's often a connection to something that happened in history. And I found Jesus often was doing this himself, where he was dealing with territory and we don't always see that clearly because we get names and miracles that he did, but we forget that he did them at a certain spot. And when I began to look at that premise that maybe the spot was important too, I found that he was often healing history as well as the iniquity on the land and fixing individuals that were nearby. And uh, so when I was in Europe, <clears throat> um, started in 2007, I began looking at uh, what was going on, the breakdown that was happening in many places with the uh, moral and iniquity issues. And I was looking at Germany, <clears throat> um, Greece, and Switzerland, and then I went to Israel. And when I was in Germany, I dealt with an ancient altar that was on the land in the Black Forest that had been there way before the Germany we know from World War One and World War Two existed. And it had a lot of occult and very bizarre attachments to it. Um, I was, as I was searching that out, then I, then I found a similar one in the island of Crete. And then um, I went to Israel and I found two in Israel that I thought was very troubling. One was out um, in the Valley of Megiddo and the other was uh, near Jerusalem. And as I began to just inquire of God, what about what? What do we do with these things? Um, you know, the, I, I've got a great respect for antiquities. Um, 
I think a museum piece deserves to be displayed and, and understood. But when we study history and display it, I just found we, we've got to at least understand if there was something nefarious about it, then we should not repeat that problem. And uh, so it, in Scripture, there's a premise that says to break the altars of idolatry and to tear down the Asherah poles. And I, I didn't like the idea of breaking an altar that was ancient because it sounds like you're destroying something that should be understood and and possibly put in a museum to be studied for the future history. And I, when I prayed about it, I just felt like God said, you don't have to physically break something that's valuable, but you have to break the spirit or the power that's attached to it with that idolatry and any demonic attachment. And that's just done by prayer and obedience, doing whatever God says. And so I've found myself doing that more often. And then after that particular trip, uh, we, we gained some success and some really intriguing things that happened in three spots over there. And then I flew back to the United States and wasn't planning to go to Jekyll Island. I I didn't really know anything about it other than it was a place and it was some kind of a a spot where a lot of wealthy guys had had a country club at one time. That's about all I knew about it. <clears throat> but I landed in New York and um, the, the, I spent a night in New York to visit with some family. And uh, the next morning when I got up, I felt it had a real strong um just an inspiration for the Lord that I needed to go to Jekyll Island before I came home. And uh, when I asked why, I just felt like it may be following that same pattern. But I, I got a very clear answer to the Lord that there was an altar there that I needed to understand. And he wanted me to pray there before I came home. So I booked a two-night stay there and drove down i had a car in new york waiting on me but I, I drove down and as i was driving down i did find out i already knew some of the native history of georgia but um i only really had understood the the creek and the cherokee natives i really didn't look at the ancient history of georgia that much and so when I arrived there, um, I, I kind of follow a protocol that sounds a little funny to some people, but when I go somewhere, I often only know enough to get there, and I've just got to be hearing God and trusting that he's going to direct my steps. So I got there. I, I, I knew there was a connection to the country club and found out as I was uh, as I booked that stay that that had just been reopened it had been closed I think in 1939 um, and it had just been remodeled and reopened the, the state of Georgia uh, had taken it uh, made it a like a park and a historical um, I think they got everything listed on the historical reg register, and then they decided to reopen the club as a tourist destination. And so they opened it up as a hotel. And the cottages that were all there that were built by some of the wealthiest families in the United States back in the early 20s, those had been, for the most part, either marked as historical sites or been remodeled and fixed up uh, with the restoration project to kind of display the, what those guys had built, and they were all listed on the National Register. Um, when I got there, God, uh, all I knew is there was an altar somewhere, and um, I wasn't looking for the 
um, the country club history as much as I was something more ancient than that. So I started inquiring about the native um, connection and found out that the whole country club had been built on top of a native village. Um, it was attributed to a tribe called the Timucas, and uh, they had a little museum there. So as I went through their museum, I, there was a painting in that museum that was done by a French priest back in the original original colony that had come here from France that were Huguenots, and they were looking for a place to to park and build a village, and they had docked at that area and connected with those Indians and were looking for a place to build a colony. Um, this priest painted a picture of that tribe doing a um, some kind of a ritual on top of that the altar, and they were in the painting. They were sacrificing babies, and the comments were the the Christian Huguenots were so appalled by what they witnessed that they packed up in the middle of the night and fled from that village, even though the Indians were being peaceable with them, they fled from them. And um, they ended up founding a colony in San Augustine, Florida, which was later destroyed by the Spanish. Um, but the painting depicted the Indian village as it had looked in the day that these guys had originally visited. And it, the altar was quite large. It looked very similar to one that I'd seen over in the Middle East. So I started asking the the curator and different people in the club, like, where is that? Was it was it removed, destroyed? Did they build the the Jekyll Island Club on top of it and found out that they built everything that was marked as significant for the native history. These um, wealthy families each built a cottage on top of something that had originally been a native um, spot. And so the, the council house or the chief's house and um, the altar was uh, in the proximity of the lot that was owned by Rockefeller. And so he had built his house right on top of that altar. And I thought that was quite odd. Um, if you know something's there and it's not something you want, then you just – our typical building program is just move it out of the way. Uh, to build it right on top of it and leave it under the house seemed like a very odd thing to me. Um but then God began to speak to me about this principle of iniquity, that when there's an iniquity in the land and it's attached to something like this, and especially when there's uh, innocent bloodshed and or um, you know occult-type rituals going on, then that becomes a defiled spot, and whatever is done in that spot then might end up with that defilement in it, even if you're not doing that on purpose. Uh, so... The problem that we have in modern days is we often build things on top of stuff like this. We don't think about it. We build cities on top of ancient sites, and we're usually respectful of history to some degree. But at some point, if it's the only spot to build on, then we go ahead and build. The problem with an altar is it attaches the iniquity to the land with, with innocent blood, and so that ends up making that defilement. Um, 
sort of like a brand on that spot of the land. And unless we repent and we, we deal with it the way God wants, then the, the demonic nature of that can then sometimes get intermingled in whatever we're doing that may be innocent and completely separated it from it. Um, so the, because that became Rockefeller's spot, I thought that was kind of odd. Um, and then when I... When I began inquiring about, um, you know, what were they doing? What did the, why, why did they build this particular getaway spot to begin with? Um, of course, the the other side of the history of this uh, Jekyll Island Club is this is where the Federal Reserve uh, banking system was birthed. And so when when I put those two pieces together, the Lord just basically said to me that the there's nothing wrong with a sound banking system. But when we birth a banking system with the intent of enslaving everybody uh, through debt, and that's conceived and birthed and, and chartered on top of a blood sacrifice altar, then that iniquity probably got into it. Yeah. And um, it, it doesn't mean that everything in the banking business is defiled. It means that the the overall idea of capturing and enslaving people, which would have been done with the ritual um, that the Indians were doing, in our day, in modern day, we're doing that with debt. And so we're enslaving a population with debt. And... It's not necessary. When when you look at what changed in the, the banking system the United States had at the inception of our country, we had a central bank. We, we had a, a U.S. bank, and we did not have debt. We had a dollar. Uh, what was changed is the dollar went away, and a, a U.S. reserve note was replaced. So we cannot have uh, a dollar in our economy anymore without the creation of a debt, and, and that is a slave system. And so God basically said, this is the iniquity, and it's it's uh, birthed on innocent bloodshed, and he wants it fixed. Uh, he He's not negative about the banking system itself. He, he's negative about the iniquity that's in it and the idea that it's okay to enslave everybody in the world. Absolutely. Um, let me interject there. You're exactly right. We're live with Timothy Bentz, who's just joining us. The Federal Reserve, as we find out, uh, is no more federal than Federal Express. It's a privately owned institution made up of uh, bankers uh, internationally. We don't even know all the names. And uh, they print this. They basically hijacked our currency, as I understand it, Timothy. And they print, they print these Federal Reserve fiat notes that have no backing, gold, silver, anything else. And then they loan it to the American government, I think, at 6% interest. And um, as we found out, uh, they can just produce as many of these they want out of thin air. Uh, no accountability. And look at we, where we are right now in 2023. Um we have countries saying enough's enough. We're tired of being uh, enslaved to the dollar. We want to create our own systems. Um, and you've got this uh, group now made up of uh, Russia, China, Brazil, South Africa. I forget the acronym for it. It just slipped my brain. But BRICS, BRICS, that's the name of it. Yes, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. 
and there's like 40 other nations that want to be part of it now, where you've got actually a new financial standard, maybe backed with some real things like even oil. Um, I mean, we used to have the U.S. Treasury, for goodness sakes. And um, what happened? How did we allow ourselves as a nation to be sold out to this international cartel of bankers who come in, they print our money, and then they loan it to us? We don't need anybody loaning us and printing our money, but somehow we got hijacked. And uh, what you've uncovered is astonishing. Uh, I'd heard about the book uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. And he talks about the, the birth of the uh, Federal Reserve there. You found a whole other layer to it. Literally, Rockefeller builds his house over this ancient altar, which uh, you believe is, uh, goes all the way back from Georgia to even uh, Canaanite culture. You found similarities there? Yeah, I'm not positive that it's Canaanite. Um, it's certainly in that uh, era, but I have found some evidence archaeologically with other artifacts that, have, that are throughout the Atlantic coast um, that there was trade going on with that area of the world. Um, some of the weapons that were attributed to those uh, group of Indians, they're not the same weapons that I see with other Indian tribes. They're different in nature, and they're found um, by some of the tribes groups in the Middle East there was inscriptions um, on some artifacts that you know were just attributed to something uh, you know decipherable and I think that there is a possibility that the Indians that were there were a real tribe that that does have history there but the the trade going on with uh, that area of the world probably goes back about 3,000 years and that's real controversial among archaeologists to say that there was that kind of thing going on but we have some biblical evidence that Solomon and the king of Tyre and the pharaoh of Egypt were sending ships out for three year journeys and according to some ancient records on that their side they they circumnavigated the world back then um, yes now now, whether that makes it Canaanite, I'm I'm hesitant to say that authoritatively. I say that because of the nature of the rituals that were being done. They line up with what I found in uh, the European areas that related to the ancient Canaanites. And there's some inscriptions that uh, appear to be uh, that that's, uh, that's the case. Uh, one of the weapons, for instance, was uh, a type of bow that's got a double a double uh, S-shaped curve, and it's a, like a la- layered laminate. That was not invented by any Native American tribe in North America that we've seen. So either they got that design from someone with trade, yes. or they may have been a colony that came from over in the, the other parts of the world. Well, let's talk um, about that for a moment, because um, you get over there, and God orchestrated it perfectly. One divine appointment after the next... Um, they link you up with the museum curator there um, who's got access to everything. And um, do I recall the story correctly where he he also, uh, you had inquired about uh, other Native American artifacts there, and he said they even had skeletons, and he showed you a dig. Tell me about what you saw under some plexiglass. 
Well, they had they had displayed as respectfully as possible uh, the native artifacts that they had found. Yes. Um, so they they weren't trying to move those artifacts into a separate museum. They basically had built the the Jekyll Island Club on top of all these artifacts. So the ones that they had found that were skeletons, uh, they had left them in place and just uncovered them enough to be visible, but they had left them on the ground in their spot, which was as respectful as possible. And they had just covered them over to protect them so that, the, you know, these are supposedly the chiefs or the, the you know, the elders of the village or whatever. They were, they were seemingly buried in a very respectful spot, and it was close to the um, – the ritual areas so the thing that made them interesting is they were quite large um they were a little larger than normal and most native american tribes uh they're pretty much when we found bones they're not much different from our size today but in that area there was some history among the french and spanish that some of the tribal uh groups were quite larger than normal and to the Spanish especially, that was uh, recorded a lot because the average Spanish person at that point was less than six foot tall. And so they were running into Indians that were sometimes a foot or two taller than them. Wow. And we're talking those artifacts. Um, what's interesting about this whole thing, of course, we, we had, the, we had a, a federal law passed. Um, I forget the exact date on it, but it was for the Antiquities Act. And it required museums to give uh, native artifacts back to the tribe that they belonged to to re-intern bones where they belonged and uh, the state of Georgia I don't think did anything disrespectful from what I saw they were trying to highlight those things in place and that's right. probably where they should stay but the story now that they give is that they returned any artifacts back to the native tribes and I can't find any Timucas that are still alive that exist anywhere in a recognized way, so I don't know who they returned them to. Right. Um, um, they rebuilt the museum and completely removed all of those artifacts, so you can't find any of those native artifacts in the current museum anymore. Um, and even the painting went to the University of Georgia, uh, what I was told, and then later they're not displaying anymore. They claim that it was uh, had water damaged in one of the hurricanes that came through, and that they're having it restored. Oh my goodness! Um, um, but some of this stuff, I found this pattern where when when God leads somebody to deal with this stuff, it's just a prayer journey. And you know, to be fair for myself and guys like Henry Groover and others, we, we don't know what we're doing except we know the one who does know what he's doing. And um, we don't claim to be experts. We're just trying to be obedient to walk out what God wants. But sometimes when something is done and you pray correctly, uh, things change. And when they change, one of the evidence of it is it gets cleaned up. The, the iniquity gets removed. And so I, I'm not negative about the story, uh, you know, it's harder to prove now because a lot of those artifacts have been shifted or moved or returned to someone and I think that was done partially on purpose to just you know hide the fact that our banking system is corrupted you know? absolutely um, it always the other side be. of it is the stock market crashed right after this prayer was done at that altar and um, I didn't 
pray with the intent of crashing the market. All I was asking God to do was remove the iniquity and deal with it any way that he felt was necessary so that we would be set free from slavery. So I would I would submit to the listeners that in 2008, God's response to our slavery was to set us free. But the average business person, Christian, church, ministry went into panic mode and started crying out for God to fix the market, which left us in slavery. So we end up with a bailout instead of a, a an exodus. You know? And I still believe that we're understanding judgment in this country until we fix our uh, uncompliance with with the biblical record and with God's heart on debt. You know, we're we're not allowing. Uh, the, this nation to be free of debt, even if you pay off all of your bills personally, because you're a U.S. citizen, you have a debt you can't repay. Right, um, and that makes way, you that makes you a slave, whether you understand it or not. You know? Absolutely, doesn't the Bible say the borrower is slave to the lender? That's right. So we we this country was birthed to be free, and we're not free anymore. No, and, we have we have had our financial system hijacked we've been turned into fiscal slaves we're live with timothy benson just joining us timothy let me take you back to jekyll island though for a minute um so you discover that where jekyll island uh, is erect, uh, where where the rich men have erected their their club and uh, built their lodge and so forth is right over uh, ancient uh, burial ground and the, the remains of uh, an Indian civilization that lived there in Georgia. And uh, you were shown some of the artifacts at the time, saw a bow that's out of place, but uh, you had seen before overseas that style of bow. Uh, but back to the skeletons you saw, um, do I understand correctly that some of these were at least seven foot tall? Yeah, they were... I didn't measure them because they were under they were under a, a a covering. They were visible, where they were basically like half buried but exposed. And yeah. so, but they were uh, at least seven to eight feet tall. And um, good grief! That I, I questioned that because I thought, well, was this just a one family? Was this the chief family? Maybe they were head and shoulders above everybody else. And um, didn't get a definitive answer, uh, but it seemed to be common. There wasn't just a single one that size. It was uh, uh, supposedly these were the chiefs of the tribe. So we were looking at what was believed to be somewhat of a genealogical, um, you know, several generations of chiefs, and they were all unusually tall. Um, I don't know whether that makes them descendants of the Nephilim or not, uh, but it certainly is saying that there's something about this aspect of a tendency to be, uh, you know, giants in the earth, and we've got that history in many parts of the world that has just been, uh, I think, purposely tried to be erased and, and eradicated so that we don't know that's true, but it keeps coming out with evidence in different parts of the world. Absolutely. And uh, um, Was there any um, remains left of their hair? I understand there have been uh, these gigantic skeletons found in caves around America, and some of them had red hair. Anything remaining? 
I, I didn't see that. If there was, it was not part that was exposed. So I, I can't just answer that affirmative at all. Well, um, we could agree that seven, eight foot tall is not normal. Uh, that sounds gigantic to me. Um, Timothy, so God has you zero in on Jekyll Island. You get down there. Uh, you're given a tour there. You see some artifacts uh, that tend to have some connection between there and maybe Asia or Europe. And um, God sends you over to Rockefeller's house. And that, as you find out, uh, you, you asked to see the altar. And the guy, what did he tell you? He said, I can't show it to you. Because, uh, yeah, it was, under, it was underneath the house. Amazing. So they had. So what I was told is that the parlor of that house was built right on top of the altar. So when we were standing in the parlor, we were standing on top of that altar. Now those altars in past times is where human sacrifice was done, and uh, these tribes were actually sacrificing children. That's what was evidenced by this painting, and I don't believe that that is a ritual that was a, should be attributed to that Native American tribe. That's right. why I think there was either some connection with uh, colonists that had come in among them and or they were trading with people. They had picked up some kind of idolatry yes. or worship that was probably not uh, um, originating with them. Um, I'm I'm very, very hesitant to say that the Timucas were sacrificing children. I think that we were looking at something that is a mixture of the Timuca tribe and others that probably came in and colonized with them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, there are some other um, Indian tribes, especially out in Midwest, that um, have – there's been connections found – with uh, human sacrifice and cannibalism and uh, groups that had migrated up maybe from the Aztecs and the Mayans uh, south of the border got over into North America and they were doing some of these same uh, rituals, human sacrifices. Uh, So interesting that uh, this uh, Federal Reserve System was birthed over an altar of sacrifice. Clearly it's demonic. And there's a tie-in there, no question about it. Um, how do you break that power source when you can't get to the physical altar because some of the foreboards? What did God have you do? Well, let me let me say this very clearly. If you took a sledgehammer and broke something like that, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're breaking the spiritual power of it. Okay. Um, so when the Bible says break the altars, tear down the Asherah poles, it's a spiritual problem more than it is a physical problem. And we break these things by repenting on the spot for what God is concerned about. And then we ask him to deal with the spirit that is on it. You know? So it's attached to some kind of demonic power, and he's the one that brings that down. He throws down the powers, and um, I don't do that in my own authority. I just repent for whatever he says repent for. I ask him to remove the iniquity from the land, and it's his power that breaks the spirit that is over that spot. Okay. Um, in this case— Now, what what I found—let me finish one thing. Oh, yeah. What I found is that if that— Usually that is the end of it. That that's completely sets the the area free of it. However, 
if the iniquity is repeated, if the worship of something idolatrous is repeated, then it's kind of like a lease. You can you can break it and annul it and ask God to remove any uh, you know uh, oaths that were taken to that kind of an evil covenant. But if we someone comes back later and says, "Well, we're going to redo that again," then it's sort of a um, it's a catch twenty two. It's a heart problem more than it is an altar problem. Sure. No. Now, what type of sins uh, did God have you uh, repent for that had been committed there? Um, child sacrifice, idolatry, uh, idolatry, worship of anything that is contrary to the living God, um, not valuing life, um, you know, ruling over uh, something that might not be legitimate in meaning that God may not have given you the spot, but you're ruling over it with. Uh, power and harshness and murder and nefarious activities. Um, uh, the list of things looking at uh, the idea of uh, I can rule because I can instead of I can rule because God has given me permission to um, steward over this spot. Now, when you were taken into this parlor there in Rockefeller's house uh, where the uh, Federal Reserve was birthed, uh, the museum tour guide there, the the curator, Um, if I recall the story, he let you go in that room and pray, and he sat out, and he was reading some kind of book or magazine. Um, What occurred next after you began to repent for the sins that were committed there? Did you actually uh, hear a noise? Yeah, he was respectful. He was very respectful, just allowing me some time to pray. He stayed... Uh, he stayed in the house and in the room the whole time so he just sat over in one side and was busying himself while I had some time to pray but he was in the same room and when I prayed uh, I just asked God how do you break this uh, altar what do you want me to do and first it was repentance again for the things that I was saying and I'm repenting for two levels I'm repenting for the ancient bloodshed that would be innocent bloodshed and idolatrous worship and then I'm repenting for the iniquity being allowed into our present system whoever made those decisions which would be attributable mostly to Congress and to the population who elected Congress then I'm repenting on behalf of we the people saying God we shouldn't have allowed this but this iniquity has gotten into our uh, normal way of doing things so please forgive us and uh, I asked Jesus to break it. Um, when I asked him to break it, uh, I heard a sound that sounded like a tree cracking. Uh, it it was a loud snap, like a tree snapped. Wow. And, uh, nothing was broken. We didn't. I didn't kick anything or hit anything in the um, in the room. Um, but the both of us were startled a little bit and the power of god broke it that's that's not abnormal i've seen something like that happen often i i don't think it's always necessary but sometimes god just witnesses that he heard you you know and i took that as uh jesus broke whatever needed to be broke and I don't think the artifact, again, I, I don't think the artifact itself is the issue. I think the spirit that is on it is what's wrong, and God broke that with his power. Absolutely. So. Now, uh, when you've repented of the sins and the iniquities that were attached to it, um, is there another step you have to go through 
to uh, cleanse the land or reclaim it, or is it all done automatically at that point in time once you've repented? No, that that is the next step. Is what do we do next? It's inquiring of the Lord. It relates to stewardship. That first of all, when something is messed up this bad, it's a stewardship problem. So you you have to kind of take the idea that very likely the natives, as a people group, were the rightful stewards of that land at some point. And either they rejected covenant with God or someone came in and subdued them and brought something and imposed upon them that they might not have wanted either. And this is common among many of the native tribes where another group attacks them and, and captures them and enslaves them and then, and then forces idolatry on them. Uh, that history is in many parts of the world. Um, so it's always a question mark. What do we do next? which goes back to how do we steward over something if we remove something evil from it then we need to replace it with something redemptive so the rightful stewards need to come back into um, a place where they're communing with God about what he wants done on this spot okay and if we don't if we don't do that part then often it's like a temporary benefit and then we end up sometimes having to you know repeat the process until we figure out how to build what god actually wants built on that spot you know and so i'll give you an example in history uh some of the foundational principle is in the book of nehemiah for me, the book of Nehemiah is a court case in the heavenly court from one from beginning to end. Nehemiah understood how to pray in a way that invoked the name of God in a real way, even in the courts of other kings on the earth. And so you can't see that very easy when you read it in English, but when you read it in the ancient Hebrew, Nehemiah's prayers are directed to God very often, even when he was in the court of Babylon. Now, Nehemiah, for instance, prays, Ah, Lord God, you know, that I could return back to my the land of my forefathers for my, the city of Jerusalem has been, you know, reduced to ruins and, and not one stone's returned on another. The gates are burned with, burned with fire. When he prays his prayer right at the beginning of Nehemiah, he's sad because of the condition of what he hears and the king of Babylon asked him, why are you sad? If you look at the text, the king of Babylon is a little K. It was not capitalized. So in the ancient Hebrew, God was not calling him a legitimate king. And yet he's ruling over a vast part of the earth. But then it says, and I said to the king, capital K, uh, that I might be able to return to the land of my fathers and rebuild it. So he basically said in front of the king of Babylon, who thought that he was a god, a prayer that was directed to the king of heaven. And what happened is he gets permission to go. Now, when he gets to um, Jerusalem, he has to deal with three Babylonian rulers that are um, sort of like you know, the local government uh, representing Babylon. So he's got Sanballat, Gershwin, and Tobias. And it makes a reference in Nehemiah that Tobias was living on the spot where the ancient storehouse of God was that was attached to and a part of the, the temple worship. So in the ancient text, you have a temple 
and a storehouse. And the temple is run by the priest, and the storehouse is run by Levites, both also priests but with different duties. And that's the equivalent of we've got a religious system that's worshiping God, and we've got a um, you know the, everything that he prescribed for that spot. But we also have um, a system in place to take care of the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the aliens that are in a midst, and to help anybody be restored to their inheritance if there's if they go through adversity. That's what the storehouse was for. It's God's way of doing banking. So why was Tobias living on top of the storehouse? He could have had any house he wanted in uh, by eminent domain. He could have taken any house in the territory that he wanted to live in, and there were some nice places to live. But he wants to put his dwelling on top of the rubble where the storehouse was. And that's a little bit of a mystery in Scripture. Nehemiah is bothered by that. And so Nehemiah realizes that a lot of the uh, families that were in the covenant with Israel, the covenant with God, they had married foreign wives. They had taken and made foreign um, uh, covenants and agreements that often resulted in political arrangements of marriage. So the current high priest of that day, who was a guy named Eliashib, he had married either a daughter or a granddaughter, someone in his house. Um, most historians say it was one of his daughters. He he had married a, a, a virgin holy womb in his house to Tobias, which helped him have some political advantage while Babylon was ruling. And Tobias had been given permission to live on top of the storehouse while he was a Babylonian ruler. Now, it, the scriptures does not give us a whole lot of detail about that. It just points something out. But we're supposed to know the reason it's telling that is it's telling us something's wrong. This is not God's design. So I, uh, when I was in Israel, I was looking into this particular thing. Like, why would this be um, pointed out in Scripture? Where was the storehouse in relation to the Temple Mount? I was looking for that kind of spot while I was over there just to see if any of the uh, current rabbis or archaeologists understood that. And when we located um, some history, what I discovered is that Tobias got away with that because he made an unholy alliance with a priest that should have not done that. And because he was Babylonian, he's got he's got a connection for the Babylonians' interests. So he takes a spot that was supposed to be holy and designed to be God's way of producing and restoring wealth for those that are in adversity. And instead, he, he usurps the anointing of that spot, and he becomes extraordinarily wealthy. And in Babylonian history, he was one of the bankers to Babylon. He was one of the guys that financed Babylon's wars, that conquered much of the world. And he did it because he understood if, if I can control the anointing of this spot, then I can control how wealth is distributed in the world and do it for nefarious purposes. Now, Nehemiah ends up throwing him off of that spot and saying, you have no part nor lot in Jerusalem any longer. He removes his power. He removes his ability to operate in that place. And he removes Eliashib from being high priest. And he restores righteousness and holiness to the land again. And then Babylon falls to the Medes and Persians. Now, that's a short story. 
but take that idea of Tobias. Who is Tobias? You know. So I did a little study looking for Gershwin and Sandballad and Tobias, uh, seeing if there were there was some records that existed for them. It's a little ambiguous for the other two, but Tobias's records, because he married into a Jewish family, uh, his his genealogical record comes all the way down to Annas and Caiaphas in the New Testament. Wow. That's so Annas did the same thing that Eliasha did, and Caiaphas basically had the very same DNA and nature of Tobias, who wanted to be high priest illegitimately, but with political power. And that unholy alliance is probably why Jesus turned the tables over in the Temple Mount. He was doing a lot more than just pointing out that somebody was cheating at the table. I think he was pointing out to the whole nation that you need to stop supporting with your tithes and your offerings something that's utterly evil, that's stealing widows' houses and corrupting the system and then pretending to be religious and holy while they're not. And he turns it over. In essence, he was turning over the financial system that was in place that was using a religious uh, obligations to enslave everybody. And uh, Now, that premise is a little bit far-fetched to some people, but I found that kind of thing repeated in many parts of the world where someone righteous gets corrupted or, or compromised and they make an agreement they shouldn't with somebody that's evil and corrupt and then that ends up causing a spot on the earth to become iniquitous. And then when that iniquity is not repented for, it often sets a system in place that ends up enslaving or bringing all kinds of, of wicked schemes to fruition. This is amazing. Revelation. We're live with Timothy Bitts. Timothy, so you're over there. You make the connection. Um, did Nehemiah break that curse, or was there something that you needed to do in present time? Were you able to find uh, the location? Did you prayer walk it? What did you do? Well, I, I sat on the Temple Mount and couldn't find the exact spot where the storehouse was. And it's hard to see because the Temple Mount's been built up. It's about 60 or 70 foot higher than it may have been in Jesus' day. Um, so, But I was allowed to go under the Temple Mount. I, I went through the water shaft. Um, wow. Wow. Uh, we explored a lot of the underneath caverns um, with some rabbis and some help from them. Um, they were very respectful. They weren't trying to tell me things they didn't know. They just were able to answer things that they did understand. And they were searching for some of these things. Um, the The thing that bothered me was the idea that there's no temple there now. They want to rebuild it, but there is a mosque there. And the mosque is basically looking very close to it, – it may actually be on the spot or very near the spot where the storehouse was. Um, when, I, when I looked at um, this idea of, of usurping space, that if I'm not legitimate and I'm not in compliance with God, but I have political or you know strength or power for some other reason – I might take a spot that doesn't belong to me, and I'm taking it from somebody that God wants to steward over it. 
and when I take it, I I have to hold it with power. I can't hold it with blessing because I've got to use power, and that's where this iniquity stuff seems to be when we when when idolatry is lifted up, when innocent bloodshed is done, when something is done that breaks God's rules and covenant, then it sometimes empowers something temporarily until that's repented for. And so we end up sometimes being in duress because of it, but it's not the problem itself. It's the fact that we don't know that we need to repent for something. And we don't always know that the person that is in charge right now may not be God's choice. It may be something that they they exercise their own power and usurped someone else's place. Well, So when I, I looked I... at this idea that Annas and Caiaphas may have been illegitimate high priests, I actually found a document in Jerusalem that shows a, a contract between Annas and uh, Pontius Pilate and King Herod. Amazing. And and so Annas actually purchased the rights to be high priest, not from God, but from Herod and Pontius Pilate. Wow. They didn't have the authority to give it to him, but they did anyway. That means that someone else that was more qualified to be the high priest because they were holy had to be displaced. And so the stewardship of what is holy in the earth is tossed aside and someone takes the stewardship and then does it with iniquity. And that's the problem that I find that God really wants his people to get more engaged with all over the world to fix. Um, This is amazing. So you're there in Israel. Got to go through some of the tunnel system there. Uh, while you were there, did you inquire about the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant? I did not because I'd already met a um, few people that think they know where it is. And uh, I think that they did find it. Um, Are you talking about none other than Ron Wyatt? Maybe? Yeah, I met Ron Wyatt, and I have a high amount of respect for him. Amazing. Um, He's been discredited by a lot of archaeologists since his death, but I think that he actually did find it. Um, I've never seen it. I did not go to the spot that he uh, was digging at, but I talked to a few people that were involved in that dig, and and I believe that he legitimately did find it. Um, I believe um, he found Mount Sinai. Um, And it's interesting that... Uh, Saudi Arabia has opened up, and you can take a trip over there. Cost you about five to ten grand, but people have recently been going over to uh, Jabal Al Laws and uh, the site of Mount Sinai and the Rock of Horeb, and we're getting to explore some things that have been closed off to the to West for for a long time. Um, right, Timothy. Let me take you back for a minute, uh, Israel to Germany. Uh, when we started a program. Okay. You told me that some of your first uh, trips were places like Germany, and uh, you were over in the area of the Black Forest. And I meant to ask you a question. Um, I've been studying some of the World War II history, and uh, we're finding out that the Nazis were deeply involved in the occult. Uh, Heinrich Himmler, uh, and they were looking for they were looking for occult objects. they're looking for the sword of destiny. Um, over there in Germany, um, when you came to the Black Forest, 
Was there any tie-in with that altar and maybe the druids or runes? What did this altar look like that you find over there in the woods? Uh, it was a lot smaller than the ones that I found in the Middle East, but it was um, definitely an ancient stone altar um, with the same principle of, you know, worshiping something that's idolatrous and then, you know, spilling innocent blood on it. Um, so the thing that I found is that uh, the Black Forest is a beautiful, beautiful area, but it's also quite um, rugged, and, and you, you, they have a lot of walking trails. And they, the, the Europeans like to get out in nature, but they often mark out trails and spots and follow the rivers and the springs, and some of the forest areas are very difficult to navigate through if you get off of the beaten path. Yes. So there was people that I was friends with that were live in Germany. They they were looking for this thing. They knew about it from history, but um, wow. there was a couple of Lutheran churches and a couple of um, uh, Christian pastors in southern Germany that were trying to figure out where it was uh, just to pray over the land, and they were just doing a good stewardship of Germany, not wanting the the things like the Nazi era to ever rise up again. And um, we couldn't find anybody that had visually reported seeing this altar for over 100 years. Um, Amazing. So most of the guys there, including the ones that I knew personally, they just gave up. They they sort of they prayed, but they did never pray on site so they, because they couldn't find it. And then a strange thing happened when I was there. I was in uh, Munich and Stuttgart area just meeting with some different um, ministry leaders and was unrelated. It wasn't about altars. It was just, you know, typical church stuff. And um, I got a a, a call from a friend in Berlin that said, there's a strange thing going to happen in Berlin. Maybe you ought to come up here and take a look at it or, or at least, you know, give us some counsel on how to pray and the Dalai Lama was coming to Berlin oh. and a group of um, an occult group out of Canada uh, a known warlock out of Canada was going to be there and um, there was 13 grandmothers that were supposed to be native connected to different tribes and different uh, uh, um different nations of the world but they they're kind of a loose group of uh sounds like a uh, el- elders that are called the 13 grandmothers and wow that number is a little odd and so i started looking at well who are they what are they going to do and they basically announced that they were going to um, pray to restore the ancient gods of germany really and uh that was very suspicious because the ancient gods of Germany are not good, and uh, right. that's not good for the German people. And so we we sort of I said, well, I don't know who those people are. I know who the Dalai Lama is, but I don't know who these other folks are, uh, except for the one in Canada. I, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. So when I looked up the grandmothers and their history, um, one of them was attributed or supposed to be a member of a tribe that I'm very familiar with here in Oklahoma and so I called the tribal chiefs and elders and asked if they knew who she was and if she was a good person or not because I thought this may just be innocent cultural stuff just grandmothers representing their culture that's not a bad thing and uh, 
and they discredited her. They said, we don't know who she is. She's not a member of the tribe. This is not legitimate. We don't think she's even uh, related to us in bloodline. You know? And yet she's claiming to be you know, a, a holy or a, a, an honored member of our tribe, and what she's doing is illegitimate. So when I looked up several others who were also from different parts of the world, I realized this is just a witch's coven that's pretending to be native elders. Right. And uh, so I called my friends in Berlin and said, you know, don't be alarmed by stuff like this when the when the enemy's up to stuff. That's not the problem. The problem is something that we need to deal with. And maybe there is something on the land that we really do need to deal with, and they're just getting wind of it too. But the Dalai Lama coming is a serious issue. And I heard. I don't know if you. I don't know if you know his history with Germany, but he goes. No. He he has a long time connection. Uh, relationally, not saying he is one, but relationally with a lot of the Nazi leaders. I didn't know and, that. Uh, I heard that he was uh, involved in coming over to America and uh, cursing waters, water bodies. And- well, yeah, what he does is a ceremony that's called the Kala Chakra ceremony. It's building a sand mandala and invoking. Um, a three-dimensional temple for Buddha, and then they chant into that temple 667 demons that they then release into the waterways. Whoa! And it is an act of war. Uh, It is a way to try to take the spiritual authority on the land and uh, release those demonic powers to secure the uh, spiritual authority everywhere the water flows. Well, I don't feel bad about and, him being persecuted now. This guy sounds like uh, he's into full-on black magic, and um, you find out he's going to be over there in Germany. Now, um, the story is there was some altar there that people had not seen in over 100 years, but you believed it still to be there, and then you hear about this uh, group that's coming in there. So you put two and yeah, two and together. I, we- at first, we didn't know if those things were connected. They're quite a ways apart. Okay. But but I was more concerned about Berlin. Uh, it sort of deviated our attention to Berlin because I, I know of another altar in Berlin that's even more concerning. And it is the um, – it's now a museum that's right by their government's uh, area, uh, very, very near the Brandenburg Gate, and it's called the um, – um, it's the it's the altar that was from uh, Turkey, and it's it's called the altar of Zeus in some places. It's called the seat of Satan in some places in history. Yes, uh, it was an ancient artifact that was in Turkey, and the before before World War One happened, archaeologists from Germany were going all over the world looking for these ancient artifacts that related to uh, the giants and to the Nephilim and to occult uh, powers in different parts of the world, and they were sometimes trying to understand them from a, a power perspective and also um, you know, for some reason, they decided to dismantle this altar um, in Turkey and bring it back to 
Berlin, and they reassembled it and built a museum around it. It's called uh, the Seat of Satan in the Book of Revelation, but it is known in history as the Altar of Zeus, and it is a massive building. It's not just an altar from the standpoint of a stone, you know, an ancient stone for sacrifice. It's a massive building with an altar and a, a seat or a throne. And the the inscriptions that are all around that building that were hand-carved out of stone, they depict a war on the earth between God and the angels and the giants and the fallen angels. This is amazing. And so it, 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 I don't know how old it is originally, but it was, it comes from, uh, Pergamos. And, um, so the altar in, uh, that altar is now reassembled in Berlin and has a museum uh, wrapped around it that's called the Museum of Pergamos or the Pergamon Museum. And, uh, it's very troubling because they, they didn't repent for anything. They just disassembled it and moved it and re-erected it in Berlin. Now, what makes it real troubling is before Hitler took power, he called for the Dalai Lama, who had been rescued by um, a SS officer named Hauer. It's what the movie, you know, Seven Years in Tibet is based on, where that particular mountain climber that was a a good mountain climber and you know famous in history for mountain climbing but he was actually an ss officer he rescued the dalai lama when china wanted to kill him and he was just a very young boy and they helped him escape to uh, present day india which is where he rebuilt his headquarters in india and tibet falls to china's power Um, berlin because they helped the dalai lama out when he was a child the SS groups uh, of leaders in the Berlin, they became very close to him because they they just, I mean, I think it was a real friendship between that officer and the Dalai Lama that developed that maintained it for their lifetime. But as uh, the Dalai Lama grew in his understanding of how to, to um, do what his um, particular religion holds to, which is invoking a spirit that's 14 generations old um, he he was invited to Germany before Hitler took power and he did this same Kala Chakra ceremony all over Germany Wow! with about 11 or 1200 Buddhist priests that assisted him and they took the spiritual power of Germany, they released a massive mandala in the Rhine River and in all the rivers of Germany in order to secure the spiritual power over that land. And then Hitler invades, he's still not powerful politically, but he gains a little bit of of seats in the parliament, then he invades um, as soon as he becomes uh, you know, an elected leader, he invades Austria. It's a little strange. Why did he invade Austria? Um, he doesn't go to Austria to capture the land or to capture the people. He goes straight to the um, Habsburg Museum. He takes the spear that pierced Jesus' side, and he returns to Berlin with it immediately, and he walks up on that altar of Pergamos, sets on it, and claims to be the god of the world. Wow. And then he got he gets... According to some of his closest advisor, that's when he became demon-possessed. That's when he went crazy. Yes. And that's when he became a world conqueror, and we went to war. 
Yeah. Now, um, this now that knowing that history, I realize that the Dalai Lama going to Berlin is much more dangerous, and it's not a cultural benefit. It's something nefarious is going on, and um, I certainly don't want the ancient gods of the German people to rise up, and neither do the German people. You know? No so, question about uh, it. It looked it looked like the enemy was getting ready to. Uh, uh, hijacked the place again. Uh, what kind of time frame was this that you were over there? Uh, this was 2007. Okay. So you get and intelligence that... So this this would be right before... I mean, these things sort of paralleled and ran for, you know, seven, over a seven, eight-month period. I was dealing with uh, here and there, but uh, wow. the Jekyll Island... Uh, what I did at Jekyll Island was after understanding what was going on in Europe. And... Um, Again, the the thing that's interesting is most of God's people, meaning Christians, and uh, and I, I would put Orthodox Jews in the same category. They're they're trying to worship God. They're they're trying to understand Father God. Uh, they're on the same page in a lot of respects uh, as far as covenant goes. And but we don't always understand the spiritual principles we understand i need to have a relationship with god but we don't always understand god's design for the earth and so um i found in walking out these kinds of things on you know prayer journeys and this just obeying god and seeing how he deals with history and how he deals with current uh iniquity in the in the earth it opened my eyes to a lot of scriptures that talk about places on the earth and gives them a lot more importance than we have often given them so we sort of think about history as just something that happened a long time ago and we might value the spot for uh, you know an event that happened thousands of years ago and make a museum out of it but we don't always understand that that spot on the earth needs to be stewarded over someone that has God's heart for the purposes that God wants and if we don't if we don't do that if we don't watch over our home or watch over our city and pray, and we're supposed to watch and pray, not just pray. If we don't do that, then these things often turn into something troubling. You know? Absolutely. And so um, in Germany, I realized that the German people are very cool and amazing, and there's a lot of incredible churches and, and Christians over there. But I also realized that this was something from outside of Germany. People were coming from afar, and they were going to try to invoke something on that land that was very detrimental for the people that live there. Yes. And what? so I, I, I don't view that as we got to go fight that because it's spiritual warfare. When I see something like that going on, and and God already has me on the ground, not far away. Yes, sir. I simply inquire, "What do you want? What is this relate to anything that I'm doing? Is this something you want me to engage in? Uh, okay. I, I don't want to do anything without permission." And uh, so but you inquire- in this case, God God just said to me, "Berlin's in jeopardy. Hmm. The government of Berlin is in jeopardy, and the German people um, do not want this stuff to rise up again." You know. so, so you were literally I was like well how do, how do we pray and uh, again that's where this altar sort of they seem to be far apart the black forest in southern Germany is a long ways from Berlin but I thought whatever they're doing in Berlin um, is there something going on and just a couple of days later 
this group of grandmothers announced that they were going to try to find this same altar in southern Germany that we were looking for. Oh, boy. And that was like, okay, the red, you know, the tenors went up for everybody that was praying. And it's like, well, there's something afoot. It's like the the people that are really evil are trying to do something the same time we are. And if if they find it, they may know where it is because they might have some occult records that knows where it is and we don't. And so I simply asked God, what do you want us to do, you know? And uh, the Lord said two things to me. He said, I want you to go to both places, and uh, I'll tell you how to pray at both places. So I said, well, I can't go to the altar because we don't know where it is. You've got to help us. And that night I had a dream, and in the dream I was given the compass coordinates. Oh, my goodness. So we, I called a friend of mine that was in that area, um, and... Uh, he got his compass. He went straight to those compass coordinates. It was difficult. It took them four or five hours to walk in under the uh, the because it's deeply wooded area. And uh, but when they got to those exact compass credits uh, co- coordinates, they put their hands on the altar. They found it, and it was under a lot of brush. It was not visible. We wouldn't have found it without those coordinates. Amazing. So and uh, God has showed you where it's at. What happened next? Well, we simply then said we need to ask how to pray and uh, what to repent for. And it's older than anyone that was alive in the village. So that we there was a lot of issues that we thought probably went on there that was pretty nefarious, but it goes back 100 years or more. And it was like, well, a lot of these kinds of records were destroyed because Hitler at first brought a lot of the occult people by his side and then he killed a lot of them later. Um, once he gained power, he 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 killed a bunch of witches. He killed a bunch of occult people. He uh, he sort of went after everybody that he didn't like once he gained power. But he used anybody that he needed to to get the power. And um, so when we inquired of the Lord, He said, "I want you to repent for the innocent bloodshed." And uh, then He gave me a strange thing. He said, um, "Germany's known as the fatherland." but they're disconnected to Father God. And I want them to have a relationship with Father God. Part of their anointing as a nation is to release the presence of Father God. Wow. And they, they need to repent for a lot of things, but that disconnect is often damaging them. So even when they're... They have good families that very often they uh, fathers struggle uh, in Germany to be good fathers, even if they want to be. And God just says it's a relational problem with Father God. They need to be able to move into an anointing where they only do what they see the Father do and only say what they hear the Father say. And that the the greatness that is supposed to be attributed to them as a as a people and as a language and as a place on the earth is dependent on their relationship with Father God. and uh, that was quite an interesting wonderful thing so we prayed that out we repented for a lot of uh, mostly the locals that lived there repented for things that they knew that were attributed to what was done Um, you know even um, this is controversial what I'm about to say but even stuff like the um, you know pre-Christianity in many nations involves a lot of stuff culturally that may 
it gets watered down in history and yet it can be really really bad when you look back there and stuff with idolatry and with um, just call, just just normal ritual and practice where we think it's common or normal because it's our culture but it may be really nefarious once you find God and and you discover uh, you know how to be holy and, and humane then these things change but the the blood the, the altar itself was known to have been a human sacrifice altar and somewhere in that area I don't know this spot but somewhere in that area there was a battle site between um, some of the ancient Roman legions and they fought with 28,000 giants wow in Germany you know and those records are in the Roman uh, war records um, oh, so where that battle took place um, where that uh, I, I don't know that exact spot I've not explored that but the Roman army faced the giants and they didn't they didn't win they lost a whole legion against them on their first round and um, what part of they never conquered yeah the Romans never conquered Germany totally you know because of that um, so when you when I put that together I'm not saying it's always bad if you see giants in history but something about this some of these ancient bloodlines yes. that were attributed to the ancient gods of the Germanic peoples it had this connection with the Nephilim and with the rebellion that was against God himself that's know? right all going all the way back to Genesis 6 if you're just joining us we're live with Timothy Bentz. Timothy, um, what part of Germany did you find the altar in? Well, um, I actually dealt with two altars. One was the one I described that was in the Black Forest, and the other was the one that's in Berlin. Okay. And uh, both of those were disconnected in the sense that, you know, they shouldn't have been in close proximity because the one in Berlin was brought there from the, the, the country of Turkey. Right. Uh, the Pergamon and, uh, altar. It, it should not be in Berlin. Why is it in Berlin? You know? very, very good question. Uh, but uh, I think because Hitler wanted that occult power source there, the seat of Satan. Now, yeah, it seems like it was brought there before Hitler took power, but he understood it. He knew what its benefit was. So okay. he used it for his power. But I think it was brought there probably originally as a real artifact, just an extraordinary artifact. And But the idea of moving something from one part of the world where it's discovered to another part if you just put an artifact in a museum and displayed it said here's some really interesting history we want people to remember that would be one thing but to reassemble it and to reactivate it for power is a completely different thing that's where the occult stuff steps in and says we we know how to use that iniquity for something that is nefarious i want to talk about the pergamon in just a minute but uh finish up on the black forest so you act you got the compass coordinates uh you had someone check it out to verify and then did you actually go out there yourself to the yeah, we site. we had a group that went there, and um, the first go round, I didn't go. Um, just sent the compass coordinates, and they found it, and then they began praying for wisdom on how to deal with it. Okay. Um, 
Well, that took us a couple of three or four days just sort of communicating back and forth saying, let's not rush out there to break something. Let's ask God what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. In the meantime, this thing was going on with this group that was wanting to um, restore the ancient gods. So we... We wanted to keep it a little bit quiet on where it is because we didn't want them to go out there and do something at the same time. Right. Uh, but the other side of it is, why are they even going there? I mean, I, I questioned the Lord about it, wanting an answer, because I said, why would someone from Canada and other people that are from all over the world, why would they want to go to that altar? What do they know about it that we don't know? And um Good question. If it relates, if it relates to the ancient history with the giants, they may have more information on what that was about than we do. And I don't care about that from the standpoint of having to know everything. I just want to understand, you know, what do we need to repent for so we actually repent for the real, real things. And so I'd rather hear those things from God and not from the enemies of heaven, but at the same time, often I have found this to be the case that sometimes the occult in the world know more than God's people do because we're not asking the right questions. Good point. And um, so anyway, we got a list of things that God wanted us to repent for, and um, and He basically said very clearly, "I do not want the German people to try to reactivate these things that are ancient that will be their demise. It will it will bring." It could bring that nation to an end. Yes. And he he loves the German people. You know, and he wants them to to be fully involved in the things that he created them for. So um, we thought we're going to have to deal with this. So a friend of mine and I drafted some communication and we we basically sent it to the – to the occult group and said um, Jesus says no you can't come and uh, the local groups I gave them some instruction the local leaders just some little bit of instruction on how to secure that as a spiritual gate and and to watch over their, their territory steward over what God has given them to watch over and so they prayed at that spot for that spiritual gate to be cleansed and the iniquity to be removed and for that to uh, come into the, the kingdom of God and be handed over to the stewardship of Jesus himself, yeah. that he would watch over that gate. And um, I intended to pray the same thing in Berlin, but before I got there, we found out that this entourage of, of uh, you know, occult people were trying to come down to that area. So that they sent a lady down there. I don't remember her name, but they sent this lady down there from Berlin to see if she could find it. And uh, she apparently knew some of the folks involved in occult in different areas of Germany. So they were going to try to locate the altar. And then if she found it, the whole group was going to come down there, supposedly, possibly with the Dalai Lama. Wow. And uh, I don't know that the Dalai Lama would have done that, but I think they were trying to encourage him to come with them. Uh, it's not the kind of thing he does. He does the Kali Chakra thing. It's completely different, but it has you know similar similar issues. And um, anyway, the lady, uh, when she tried to go finding it, uh, she goes out into the forest area and she has a heart attack. Wow! And ended up in the hospital. And uh, one of the local pastors basically 
communicated, look, I don't know if he went to see her or sent her a message, but he basically said, what you're doing is violating something that God wants, and I'd encourage you to repent. We would be happy to pray for you to be healed, but you've got to stop trying to mess up the the nations. Yes. And so so, uh, I was told, I never met her, but I was told that she repented and she lived. Wow. Um, now, I don't know that she got saved, but she repented for trying to do something. And she basically sent a communication back to the other group that something had changed. They weren't going to be able to do what they wanted. And we had sent a letter to that same group from some of the leaders just saying, uh, Jesus is watching over this gate, and he says the gate is shut to you. You're not allowed to come there. Now, I want to clarify and, something. And they did. Now, that, to me... Those things can still be violated, but they may try anyway. Okay. But when we put our foot down, legitimately, not because we have authority, but because God does, and we right. say, you know, God, we give this gate to you. Now you watch over it. If He says, "All right, I'll, I'll shut the door," then you can tell everybody else the door's shut. You know. Okay. So, and if, if someone tries to open that door, they get in trouble with God, and He just, uh, He's always gentle and merciful, but He will correct it. You know. And uh, so I think that's what this lady ran into was just a, a gentle nudge from the from the power of God that she needed to stop trying to kick the door in. Now let me clarify uh, something. Um, this was an, a demonic altar there in the Black Forest. God gives you the coordinates on it. Um, does He want you to go there and break the curse and break the altar? Uh, you mentioned the gate. Uh, how how is it? What do you mean by gate versus the uh, demonic altar you located there? It's a a good question. Usually these things go parallel, where if there's an altar, there's generally a spiritual gate, too. Okay. Um, Because the reason why they set up an altar is because they're trying to secure a spiritual gate. Oh, wow. You mean, I've heard terms like gates or portals. Uh, Was this a a location, a gate uh, to heaven, like... um, the angels came down on that uh, stairway. Uh, was it a, a gate to hell? What, what do you think this gate would have opened up to? I, I don't think so. I think it was one of the ancient boundaries for the Germanic people. Okay. And um, so, you know, basically, though, spiritual power that is um, understands God's design they know that certain spots on the earth have this kind of thing. So my my favorite example of this in Scripture is the Bethel, where it calls the spot Bethel the gate of heaven. It's okay. where Jacob dreamed his dream and saw the ladder with angels ascending and descending. So why is that spot in the in a very rural area, you know, 22, 23 kilometers from Jerusalem, um, out in the middle of nowhere, why is that the gate of heaven? Right. Yeah. Good good point. It's something to do with God's design of the earth that we don't always understand because we may not see a city there, but God has a spot on the earth where angels are coming and going. Like it's like the elevator, the you know, wow. I, I call it the the fast track into the throne room. Um but why it's there is something we need to understand more. And now the other side of that is that's a that's a what I call a vertical gate that's ascending and descending, you know. So from that spot, spiritual power can be utilized in some way that uh, that disrupts 
or directs what's ascending and descending. You know? Okay. And the uh, another type of gate that works the same way is when God establishes a boundary and we end up with a spiritual gate and it might um, be a, a horizontal gate. Something either comes through or goes out there. You know? So if we wall a city up and we have a gate, you can't get into the city without coming through the gate. In the same way as what's spiritual that might affect the whole land, it comes through the gates. Okay, I got and it. So, I get entrance. So God, so God usually wants someone stewarding over those spots who's mm. who's walking in righteousness and praying correctly and 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 you know keeping their eye on the land to make sure that it doesn't become defiled. It almost sounds to me like uh, that gate was captured and um, a demonic altar was put in its place. That's exactly that's exactly what I think. So somebody understood this is a special spot that for you know entering or exiting Germany. So we're going to uh, sacrifice innocent bloodshed there, and we're going to defile the land. Oh boy! And then we're going to take over. So y'all thwarted the uh, efforts of that witch coven and those people in the Dalai Lama from getting over there uh, to to retake it. now let me switch you back over to the uh, the Pergamon altar, the altar of Zeus. Very interesting that that is actually picked up brick by brick or stone by stone and reassembled there in Berlin. Um, were you able to do any spiritual warfare at that location? Yeah, yeah. Now I don't believe in doing anything in the dark, so I always think, well, we should. We should do everything above board. If somebody asks me what I'm doing, I tell them. You okay. know, I don't always understand what I'm about to do, but I tell them I'm there on assignment. God sent me, and I'm praying, and I ask permission. Um, if I need to go into a place like the Jekyll Island Club, then I need to go in correctly. Uh, Jesus does the same thing. He knocks on the door, and if you let him in, he'll come in and sup with you. Yeah. Um, if somebody tells me no, I'll let them know that God's watching over, and he's going to do something about it. And, and he always finds his way of getting in, but he gets in legitimately. But I went to the Pergamon, I went to Berlin, and I asked permission from heaven, can I go see the altar? I want to go into the museum if you want me to. Wow. And I, I got a definite yes, like you need to go in there and pray, you know. And um, I'm like, well, how do I pray when I'm in there? And I didn't get a lot of um, answer on that one until the day I was going to go. Uh, asked a friend of mine to go with me who was um, uh, he, he lives in Germany but he's also an Israeli citizen and a US citizen so he's got a lot of prayer uh, examples in all three countries and he he wanted to go to that museum also because he was living in Germany, he was not living in Berlin but he was aware of the history of it and uh, he knew more about it than uh, from the German perspective than I did so um, we met there together. When we went in, God gave us a very clear um, download of revelation about why this is in Berlin. Uh, and that was very troubling because I don't believe, based on that, that it was brought there for the benefit of the Germanic people. Um, it was brought there to gain power in the earth and to usurp something over other areas of the earth. So the way God explained it to me is they moved a gate. 
from Pergamon in present-day Turkey to Berlin. And by moving that gate, they took the power of what was related to the ancient idolatry and they moved it to close proximity with the government of Germany. Yes. And then look at what... And they brought brought it into an unholy alliance with Mm. the government of Germany. Oh, big time. Which is why we have the Nazi power rise up. Absolutely. I heard uh, the place was shut down for a few years recently during COVID. They've reopened it. And I think they've got uh, Ishtar Gate over there too right now. Well, it was shut down twice uh, right after we prayed when I when I what I'm describing they shut it down and oh. they shut it down for seven years oh wow wow they claimed they shut it down to remodel it and that is actually what they did uh, they left the museum itself open but they wa- literally walled up the altar and the altar itself was shut down after we prayed I, I think God literally shut it off and they didn't know what happened, but they knew something had shifted in the spiritual realm. Timothy, when you look at this massive altar, I've seen some video pictures of it. Uh, and it's got the steps that go up, and it's got, it almost looks like um, a throne. Is that literally a massive It is. Seat? It is a throne. It was built to be a throne with an altar. So, so it's the throne of Satan. It's the altar of Zeus. So Satan would have sat on there and maybe used the uh, the back part as his armrest and put his feet down on those steps. Yeah, it's like I forget the exact number of steps. It's like twenty two or twenty three steps up to it. It's it's a huge. It's a building. It's not just a, a a throne like any other. There's no other throne in the earth like this one. Now here's something interesting. You see that, which is the actual was the actual throne of Satan, uh, as mentioned in the Word, and. Uh, Back during Barack Obama's tenure, um, he does a speech from something looks that looks just like it. Do you know what I'm talking about? There yeah, was- that's. I was. I was glad you brought that up because um, he actually went to Germany before he um, became president. Uh, when he was elected, newly elected to Congress from the Chicago area, uh, he was a freshman congressman. And he decided to make a trip to Germany. Don't know why. Wow. But he went to Germany, and he ended up getting to see uh, uh, Mrs. Merkel, uh, Miss Merkel, and he asked permission to give a speech at the Brandenburg Gate. Oh, boy. Now, politically, he was a nobody. He had not passed any laws. He had not done anything of significance for the Democratic Party or as an elected official, and yet they gave him permission to give a speech in front of the Brandenburg Gate. Uh-oh. Now, the Brandenburg Gate is is following this same thing. The Brandenburg Gate is a gate that was put there by Roman conquest. It was celebrating Rome's takeover of the area. And that is like a six-lane highway that goes under the Brandenburg Gate, and the Reichstag building is on one side of it. Checkpoint Charlie is on the other side of it, where East Germany was separated from West Germany. 
And so when you're standing in the Brandenburg Gate, you're in probably one of the most political, one of the most powerful political centers in the world where, you you know, this is a a gate to the east and a gate to the west. It's also a gate for government and for a nation, but it's also a memorial to the conquest of war that Rome did in securing, you know, Caesar as the ruler of the world. Amazing. Uh, So he stands in the Brandenburg Gate. And what's weird about it, when if you if you watch the video clips of him giving that speech, which there's still you can find those if you go looking for them, um, the audience is going to stand in front of the, the the stage. So the stage is built underneath the gate. The audience is going to they block off the street, so the audience is going to be in the street, you know, either seated or standing to listen to speeches that are given there. And uh, this is the exact same spot that Ronald Reagan stood when he was president, and he said to Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Oh, wow. And and then Gorbachev did. I mean, Reagan probably was exercising some level of spiritual power when he said tear that wall down. Yes. He was saying something that God wanted done, and and – the, the the Russians complied and tore it down. The East Germans complied and tore it down. And we have a better Germany today because of that. Right. But the power of that can be, in other words, when you're standing at a gate, you might do something holy and righteous because you agree with heaven, but you also can do something that can mess up the world if, you, if your heart is not right. So Obama goes to the same spot with permission to give a speech very much the same way Reagan did, except his purposes are different. Exactly. And what's odd about it when he's when it when it was filmed, the audience is standing in the normal spot, the stage is in the normal spot, but he's turned ninety degrees. So he's not facing the crowd when he's speaking. He was he he had his left shoulder to the crowd when he was speaking. And when I looked at it, I uh, I was watching it live, and I was like, "This is weird. Why is he standing there like that?" You know. Is he looking at the leaders? Or, I mean, I was asking some of my German friends, are, are, is Merkel and the others sitting on that side of it? Is he looking at them while he's speaking? Because most people, when you're giving a speech, you're going to look at the crowd. Right. You know? And uh, my friend from Germany said, no, he's not looking at the leaders. He's looking at the Pergamon altar. Uh-oh. So his visual, when he, when he was turned that direction, he would be staring right at the Pergamon altar. Good grief. You know, his very name, Barack. Yeah, I think that actually means that he understood that he was speaking to the altar, and he announces that he's going to run for president of the United States. You know, the very name Barack means lightning. Well, what's really troubling about that is when he came back to the United States, he gained power very, very quickly. He gained a lot of, um, you know, a lot of brownie points. The German people loved him. Uh, they thought he was quite amazing and extraordinary, and it, it's that same thing of uh, I call it a mesmerizing. It's where a leader invokes this power that's evil, and then it mesmerizes the crowd. Hitler had that it same. Made, it, yeah, Hitler. Hitler did the same thing, and I think it's because he understood how to stand in these gates and do something, and uh, it was nefarious. But when when Obama comes back to the United States, he he really changed and he he sort of became like a freight train working towards the presidency 
and gained a lot of power, um, a lot of influence with the Democratic Party. When he got elected, which was a short time later, what's very, very odd is they built a replica of that um, um, Pergamon altar as the stage in Washington, D.C. for him to give his acceptance speech when he wins the nomination. Oh, my goodness. You know, he he imported the altar like uh, the Germans did. Yeah, so he didn't bring the altar itself. He built a replica of it like like a movie set. An but he he was doing something, or somebody near him was doing something that was incorporating this same kind of power, and uh, that's very troubling. Because I'm not saying Obama's all bad, uh, but that's just very troubling that somebody was either controlling him or he understood what was what was going on. Well, I'll tell you um, something. But, but again, that matched up with what God said to me that hmm. that gate being in Germany. Yes. It means that they brought something that was, you know, I mean, the word says, don't we move an ancient boundary. So they did something to remove an ancient boundary, moved it to Germany so they could bring the power of what it had been to Germany. Mm. Yeah. And then from there, you can't hold on to that power when it's not in agreement with heaven without doing something that um, attaches it to the land, which means you need innocent bloodshed or you need. Uh, you need you need to violate God's rules with heaven, or you can't hold on to that kind of power. You know, and so they have to go to war to to shed blood in order to hold on to that kind of power. Oh boy! And uh, that this is what built the Nazi Party. It's what built the war machine for Germany, and it is the way a lot of uh, evil structures in the world are existing in our day and God's trying to help us tear this stuff down legitimately not by casting out demons but by just understanding the design of the earth and bringing it into compliance with heaven instead of in compliance with something evil now while you were in Germany did you uh, by chance get over to Vadelsberg Castle uh, yes I went there Um, that to me is uh, one of the most troubling spots in the world because it's the altar of the black sun. Oh my goodness. That that, um, that is the bloodshed spot that probably brought Hitler to power. Did you make it mm-hmm. uh, into the, the crypt at the very bottom? Yes. And um, who was responsible for that? Was that Heinrich Himmler? Yes. Um, I think I think a whole group of the SS were responsible, but Hitler, uh, Himmler lived there for a while and uh, made it their headquarters for a while. That was the initiation spot for the SS officers. So when you died as an SS officer, they would take your ring, and I heard they would send it back to Vadelsberg Castle, and they kept it there. Um, was it uh, was that already standing when the Nazis took power, or did Heinrich Himmler actually build that castle? Do you know the history on that? Uh, it was already standing. Uh, I think the altar, the, the stone is very different from the surrounding uh, landscape and rocks. So the this, this stone came from afar. Uh, I've never researched exactly where, but it's a it's a black, um, complete black uh, stone. It's huge. It's about 18 foot in circumference, and I don't know how thick. Um 
and I wasn't aware. Uh, of supposedly that was built in the um, somewhere between the four and six hundreds uh, A.D. That the the altar itself. Uh, it actually may be older than that, uh, but the castle was built around it and on top of it. Same kind of principle as Rockefeller. Oh, they, they just built the castle on top of the altar, and then um, in you know prior to World War One. Himmler must have known about it from an occult perspective, and and he ended up when they created the SS, he seized that spot for the SS headquarters. I but, had no um, idea about the uh, Black Rock. Now, is it visible anywhere there in the castle, or is the castle? Yes. Over? Oh, it is. Okay. You can't see it. You can't see it unless they let you down in there. But it's it's in the basement of the council, the castle. Ah, uh-huh. okay. So. Uh, this was actually uh, probably a place of sacrifice at one time. It well, uh, I don't know how far back the sacrifice goes, but but Hitler um, ordered the sacrifice of uh, witches, uh, invalids, insane, and um, local Jewish leaders that were opposed to him. Oh wow! And the and the 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 blood is designed. To run down a copper pipe system right into the Rhine River. Oh wow! Now there was so a, when you shed if you shed blood on that altar, you're defiling everywhere the Rhine River goes. Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. I had no idea. This is amazing. We're live with uh, Timothy Bitts. Timothy, we can't get it all in one show. I'm going to have to have you back. But um, do you have 15 more minutes you can give us? Sure. Okay. Um, this is an introduction to Timothy Bentz. Uh, I'm so excited to have him on. I'm learning stuff I never knew. Uh, Timothy, uh, it's 2023. And um, let's move from Germany a minute back to uh, the first mission God sent you on over there to the uh, um, Jekyll Island. One of the first missions over there. And uh, within um, just a short period of time after you all broke that altar in the spirit uh we had a stock market crash didn't we yes how long after your your trip out there did that occur roughly was it a few days a few weeks what do you recall about that yeah it was just a few days after i prayed over the altar that the market crashed um and you know the market dropped uh, 666 points I think um, wow which is a little weird um, it is I'm going to say something that's troubling and I, I want to be sure this is heard correctly though um, whenever God is judging something like this he's he's not trying to you know beat somebody up or kill them or damn he's, he's always judgment is always full of mercy and um, and yet mercy is not valid if we don't bring justice first. You know? So you don't give somebody mercy because they killed somebody. You convict them and you sentence them and then you can be merciful. You know? And so when God is bringing judgment, he's trying to set us free, but he's also merciful. He's, he's always going to do the very best thing that can be done for us. So when the stock market is crashing – it looks bad to everybody because we're taught that 
that's calamity that could cause an economic depression that could be you know we may not be able to keep our houses and our lands but if that's what sets us free from slavery then it's still a good thing it's a temporary problem to gain a, a, a phenomenal benefit you know and yet god's people are often out of compliance with what god's doing in the earth so we're uh, we, very often we're praying for him to do what we want him to do instead of agreeing with how he's praying and then understanding what he is doing so that we bring our heart into compliance with it for the benefit of the kingdom of heaven and us because he loves us too so when the stock market started crashing a lot of ministries went into overdrive because there's their offerings dried up and their banks were possibly failing and their investments were looking bad and we ended up with a whole group of people that sort of convened an emergency meeting and went to New York and gathered in prayer around the bull on Wall Street and prayed for the stock market to stop dropping. And it did. The day they prayed, it hit the bottom and stopped dropping. Yeah. Wow. No, but I want you, I want you to understand something. They put their hands on the symbol of Baal, and they prayed for the market to stop dropping. And because they know Jesus, and most of them love the Lord with very much with this, everything that they understand, but they did something they didn't understand. And yet, because the market stopped dropping, they take that as a victory. It's not a victory. It prolonged the judgment. It kicked the can down the road. It made it more severe. Oh it's the same kind of prayer as Hezekiah prayed, where he took the judgment and put it on his grandchildren instead of himself. Yeah. Oh boy! And we're and so it took it took what would have been a seven hundred billion dollar bailout, and it's now turned it into a thirty trillion dollar deficit. Brother, here yes. we are in two thousand twenty-three. Um, we're hearing the Federal Reserve talk about the creation, I think, of a new monster. They want to do a digital CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, a government Bitcoin, if you will, but that they control and they can program and manipulate. And I'm hearing uh, the UK talk about it. The EU is testing it right now. And we're looking at basically a digital money system that you carry on your phone in the form of a digital wallet and you're issued a, uh, a new Federal Reserve uh, digital coin but they totally control it and if you speak out against the government they can turn it off like they're doing over in China with the social credit score system uh, use one app for most uh, things over in China but if you start doing things the government's not happy with uh, they'll drop your credit score if you will and you keep yeah. uh, getting them angry, uh, they turn it off. You can't travel. You can't get a job. You can't buy or sell. Now, there's a guy named Nigel Farage. He just popped up on the radar for me today. You know, he helped bring about the Brexit, which was good. UK bro broke free of the EU. But he said uh, on the news program today, it was on Twitter, that uh, he woke up and uh, he's can no longer have a bank account. He got a call two months ago, and they told him, we're canceling your personal and business bank account that he had since 1980. He said, why? And the um, 
the banking uh, contact said you'll get a letter about it. Well, the, he got a letter that said you're being canceled in two months. Find a new bank. He said he's been turned down by seven banks. He can't get an account for the life of him. And he said, imagine you have your bank account turned off. Uh, you can't send or receive money. No debit card. Can't get a mortgage. Can't get a loan. Can't do anything hardly. You're basically, you know, an, an unbanked person. It's so bad that he's contemplating he might have to move out of the country. Nobody wants to give him a bank account. And he believes it's reprisal for um, for his political stance against the globalist, you know. And so... Yeah. Uh, there's another guy that was on Joe Rogan, and he's talking about, again, the CBDC, the new uh, Fed line system that they're uh, testing right now, where they'll get rid of the paper money and they'll put us on the digital coin. And he said it's more than just having a digital wallet, and you can pay for things, you know, uh, swiping uh, your phone against a QR code. He said they can program the money, and they can make it expire. Or you can be told what you can and cannot buy. You've eaten too much meat. They want you to eat more bugs. You go to buy meat. You can't do it. And again, uh, you know, you could be told uh, you can't use it for certain purchases. Basically, it's total slavery. Because everywhere you go, you're being tracked at the same time. You're being told what you can do with your money. Um, Are we in the checkmate phase? Is this the new monster? from Jekyll Island, the Federal Reserve's newest move, because we hear also simultaneously uh, their dollar hegemony is at risk. The nations have been required to to buy oil in USD. And now many nations are tired of it. They're tired of being in bondage, so they put together the BRIC system. And now China and Russia uh, are trading in their own currencies uh, for oil. They're not using the USD, and many countries say we want to be part of it. So the yeah. Federal Reserves, uh, they've got to come up with a new system because we're about bankrupt, as I understand it. And uh, they've lost the confidence of the world in their money system. So uh, some even believe this may be the reason we're going to war against Russia and China to keep the dollar as the king of the hill as they're trying to break free of the dollar. Um what do you feel in your spirit now, uh, years down the road, after you went to Jekyll Island the first time? Has, has God shown you anything about the money system? It seems to me like we didn't learn our lesson after the last crash. Well, the the reason why I mentioned this thing at the bull in Wall Street is, you know, you might go down Wall Street and see that bull, and it just looks like a bull. You know, we think it's a monument to a bull market. Okay. Um but if it does have an attachment to the spirit of Baal, which is, you know, worship me and I will, you know, protect your crops and I will send you the rain and I'll give you what you need. Um, when we ask a demonic power to do that for us instead of God himself, um, it's slavery. You know? Absolutely. And it requires... Uh, the the troubling part of that is I'm making a deal with the devil to have uh, success in my day at the expense of my children and my children's children. And that's a wicked heart that does that. 
you know. Instead of a, a righteous man would say, I don't care if I have to suffer a little bit. I don't care if I have to go to war. I don't care if I have to have my blood shed. I'm going to protect my children, my children's children. You know? And we would cry out for freedom like our forefathers did. You know, But the, the greed of the heart that wants success in our day, that wants everything to be okay for now at the expense of our future house – is uh, the first sign of wickedness that we need to repent for. And much of the body of Christ is guilty of that problem uh, because we have sought to selfishly lift ourselves up and not been wise in what we stored up for our children's children. Also, you see this very commonly today where people retire and they take their retirement and they go, they sell the house and they sell the assets and they go enjoy life for a couple of years and then don't leave anything to their children. And uh, that's becoming more and more common, which is the, the evidence of a wicked heart. Because you know? the Bible and says so, uh, we're to lay up, uh, lay up an treasures in, in heaven as well as to store up an inheritance for our children's children. Right. You know? And so one of the things that we're dealing with is a whole large consortium of people on the earth that want to create an elite system of rule, and they think there's too many of us. You know, So they are looking for ways to get rid of six billion people in the world well, I think without, that, being, without being accused of committing a crime. Let know? me just tell you straight up. I believe – you hit it on the head and we got this world economic forum group which i believe unleashed a bioweapon covid19 was the cover story for the brute force power grab of the planet and already it's being telegraphed that they're going to come up with another one the next pandemic is being planned the next lockdown look only two weeks ago brother timothy i don't know if i told you this but i'm on the island of bali in indonesia Seven years ago, I moved from Las Vegas, came out here. The Lord brought me out here to um, ground zero of a very demonic island. There's altars everywhere, 30,000 altars, temples, and shrines. I think you need to prayer walk this place. It's just demonic. (laughs) And uh, COVID hit uh, three years ago. uh, Indonesia stopped all inbound flights. And until last summer, nobody could even get into Bali for two years. If I had left, I wouldn't have been able to get back to my family. So I have not flown for three solid years. Only two weeks ago did I find out that you no longer have to have the uh, the COVID shots to get in. And so I called my family and I said, you want to come and visit me? Come now because I don't know how long the door is open. Um, because I don't want them to get the shots and I won't let my family get the shots. But it only just recently opened up. And this... Uh, definitely is part of the the plan to kill about 7 billion of us Um, the World Economic Forum they're looking to enslave humanity and they want to do it digitally too with this new digital currency oh by the way I just thought about something Um, what's your thinking on the Georgia Guidestones getting obliterated that was interesting 
Yeah, that the, uh, I think that's a, a completely different story, but it's a similar thing that this kind of stuff sometimes is an altar. That I don't see the guidestones as being an, an altar like a blood sacrifice altar, but sure. it was the announcement of something. That one of the rules of the occult is they have to tell you what they're doing and then they do it you know and so it's like we're going to kill everybody in the world okay well nobody said no so now we're going to do it and uh, so they do that often in secret and often obscurely and often in very creative ways but it's a similar pattern we're going to lift something up we're going to put it on the land and it's like fixing uh, fixing the uh, announcement of what we're going to do when it gets torn down like that it's really odd i I know a lot of prayer was going on about the Guidestones, and I think sometimes they lift it up and then they destroy it themselves just because it served its purpose. Um, but God is moving, and the one thing I want people to hear is that if you get your attention focused on what the enemy's doing, you're going to miss the move of God because there's a massive move of God going on all over the earth. And God is increasing his glory. He's going to fill the whole earth with his glory. But we have to know how to respond to these things when they're troubling us and troubling our lives. And somebody like, um, you know, a political leader that speaks out against it, like you mentioned, and then he suffers. Uh, He's not the only one. Uh, There's thousands of people in the United States also that have had their bank accounts uh, closed. Sure. And it's just not on the news. It's not understood how bad it is, you know. But the idea of um, you're not going to be able to buy and sell pretty soon is a pretty real thing that's going to probably happen in our lifetime. But does that mean the end of it? Well, what does God's response to that going to be? You know, what is God um, showing you that we can do as individuals? Um, to prepare, should we uh, start growing food? Should we get into gold and silver? Um, I think there... we should have always been growing food. I, I don't think anybody should ever get away from the idea of I'm going to know how to grow some food. You know, I think that's the most important thing we could teach our kids right now. You know, even if you only grow it in your yard, right? Why? Why are people all over America mowing their grass when they could be growing something to eat? Right, you know, and it's just as carbon friendly to plant some trees. I mean, it's amazing to me how, if we really do have a carbon problem for global warming, then let's plant some trees. And if right? you're going to plant a tree, might as well be a fruit tree so you can eat from it. That's know? right. Plants um, they breathe carbon dioxide. Right. We want to cut down all right. the, the it, trees. It's stup- it's stupidity <laughs> to say that we got a global problem and the solution to it is going to be a global tax. It's wisdom to say we got a global problem. Let's plant some more trees and let's plant some food we can eat. And uh, so I, every time I see the the world mobilizing to help us believe there's a disaster, it's not about fixing a disaster. It's about taking more power and control and increasing your slavery. So I, I think this is my opinion. It's not thus saith Lord, but I think in 2008 when the majority of the body of Christ did not respond to the cry for freedom from slavery that the equivalent was God 
uh, lessen the severity of the judgment. He prolonged it, uh, extended it down a ways, allowed the situation to get more grievous and worse because we're just like the Egyptians. We're stuck in Egypt, but we like the leeks and onions. We've got to get to a point where we say enough of this. We can't take it anymore. We want God to help us. And when we cry out to God, instead of being content with making bricks without straw, God answers in heaven. He deals with the the pharaohs of the earth. He deals with the idolatry of the earth. He removes the powers that want to enslave us or destroy us, and he answers them with his power. I don't have to beat the world system. I just have to appeal to God for his answer to it. Um, I don't have to be troubled by what the world's trying to do. The wicked have always wanted to kill everybody around them and have everything for themselves. Uh, I'm not, they're not the problem. The problem is when the righteous don't hear God and don't respond to Him and don't keep their hearts pure and holy and clean. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's our answer. So we have a spiritual issue that we need to deal with first if we want to see anything turn around, don't we? Right. And so we're responding to a lot of these problems with a religious spirit, which is just as bad, but it looks good, instead of, of a humble spirit that says, God, I repent for whatever I need to repent for. Show me anything that I don't understand. There may be something in me that I need to repent for that I don't even know is in me. But let's get it fixed, and then let's call out to God for his answer, and he will heal the land. I love that. That's the answer right there. It starts with us repenting. That's right. That's why we need a move of God more than we need a a new political system. Right? One uh, One man is not going to change anything. You know, I voted for Trump twice, thinking he was a solution. He wasn't. He let me down. Let a lot of people down. And I'd much rather have him in there than uh, the illegitimate government we got now, but uh, getting a man in office isn't going to change anything. Uh, if there's not any repentance, and we're in the shape that we're at because the church has dropped the ball at large. This is real troubling to think about but Shannon, but consider this, that if God is actually ruling in the heavens and he sets leaders up as he chooses, we still have these free elections, so we think we're the ones that elected that leader. But God has some way of, of doing that also. Where he's not ever disengaged. True. So if he gives us a leader that he set up, the rules in America are this. He allows us to vote. But he searches the hearts of the people in America, and he gives us a leader that looks just like us. Wow. So if you don't like the current leader, look in your own heart. Oh, boy, that's truth. That's wisdom right there. Our leader in this nation has always been a reflection of the heart of God's people that live in this nation. Like it or lump it, that's the way God works. And when we look at the political leader and we say, I don't like that guy, we should look at what's been in us that elected him. You know, I'm not talking about you voting for him. You probably didn't vote for him. But the fact that God lifts up somebody like that is because he sees what's really in our hearts and he gives us a reflection of ourself. So then we will call out to him to be our king and to fix it his way. 
you know. Wow. I tell you, whoa, that's that's the truth. That's deep right there. It doesn't matter what the way you vote. I mean, I think it's important to go vote and to participate in the election, but it doesn't matter whether you voted against somebody that you don't like. You have to be honest and say that person is a reflection of the heart of this nation. You know? And so if I don't like him, we need to repent for some stuff first, and then God will give us a leader that's more in accord with him. Mm-hmm. Brother Timothy, if I were to try to uh, just parse that what's going on out there, we got so many moving targets. We got uh, looks like we're going to end up in war with Russia, China, if we're not careful. Um, we're feeding the Ukrainians over there like uh, meat into the grinder, and uh, I think we're poking the bear in the eye. And Putin has uh, exhibited a lot of restraint, but I think if we keep. Um, doing what we've been doing over there, they're going to respond, and they've got the ability, Russia does, to cut us off of the knees. I remember a lot of the prophecies about the fall of America in the end times. You know, Dimitri Dudeman, David Wilkerson, others have talked about uh, future invasions, nuclear attack on America. Then we got the financial system dissolving before our very eyes, uh, rise of the World Economic Forum. There's a treaty getting ready to be signed by all nations to give the uh, the who the power to call the shots in the next pandemic. I mean, everywhere you turn, and then of course, hey, last but not least, look what's going on all month. Pride month. Lifting up sodomy. Raising the fist to the heavens. Uh, doing things worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Sex changes for children. Transgender. Uh, if I remember the word, it says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Uh, pride cometh before the fall. How can we be poking God in the eye and not think he's going to respond? I think that we're going to get a response from the Lord. It's not going to go good for America if there's not some repentance and quick. What do you think? Well, the the question is God always gives... He raises up nations and he puts them down and he gives them a set time to exist. There's a possibility that America will not exist in the next generation. And that's troubling. I I don't want to I don't want to rejoice over that. I love my country. Sure. Um but if it if it came to an end, what would be its replacement? You know. I think we need to be praying into that problem right now because there's sort of this false security that everything's always going to be this way right and the world is changing so fast right now it's like a freight train that's about to run us over and so uh, the best nations in the world are caving into this stuff right now right you know? and it's it's baffling why because it's going contrary to the will of their own people you know and it, it's such a level of powers working against us that it's just extraordinarily troubling. But the right response to it is not to gripe about the political stuff. It's to understand what's going on from God's perspective and then respond to him. You know, and, so uh, when I look at when I look at this nation, I don't have a right to ask God to bless it if we're in uh, opposition of him. Exactly. And I don't have a right to ask for his continued uh, protection of it if we're warring against him. In two or three weeks from now, 
um, there's going to be that same group that goes down there to the Russian River every summer, and they're going back to the owl over there in the Bohemian Grove. All right. Worship of Molech. About three weeks from now, I think, that's their next meeting. They do it every year. We're in some serious trouble. Uh, I don't see where we as a nation have brought any fruits meat for repentance. So maybe uh, this nation is a goner, uh, but can individuals and families turn things around? Is it too late for the individual? Oh, no. Uh, it's, all, it's never too late to turn around and ask God for help. Uh, again, that's why repentance is the number one issue. But repent for what? When I, when I look at the problems, I generally don't see myself in those problems. I'm just troubled by them. But when I look at myself and I let God examine me, I might have some of the same issues in me and I don't understand it. So God leads me to repentance. If I let him lead me to repentance and I repent completely for the things that he's concerned about, then he releases power to deal with the things that are going to trouble me. But the all the stuff you're describing is going on. It has a life of its own. It's going to go until it either accomplishes its uh, its desire or God puts his foot down and says, stops here. Yes. And um, the response is not to try to resist the powers of the earth. The response is to stop resisting the power of heaven, to, st- to stop being out of compliance with God's heart. And that's why repentance has to start with the house of God. Um, but now the other side of this is when I've repented, when we've dealt with the things that God is concerned about, then we have the right to pray, God help us. You know, God put a wall of fire around us. God protect our households. God save our nation. You know, and He does. But I think the the problem that most people have right now is they don't understand how bad it actually is because this idea of being mesmerized. They've just we we literally I think for most of our lifetime the general population has appealed to the government to fix their problems instead of appealing to God to fix their problems. Absolutely. And so we we in a lot of respects have enabled and lifted up the very monster that now wants to eat us. You know, and uh, that again is also something that needs to be repented for. When I look at the sickness, disease, famine. These things. Uh, one thing I want to make sure that I, I get in here is, is the cause and effect. When we when we do something that violates God's heart, then there's an effect. So, just give you one example. For decades, um, uh, Miss Covey, who was the Roe in Roe v. Wade, was appealing with her attorneys to the Supreme Court to have her case reheard. It was put off and put off and put off and put off, and she was the only one that had a legitimate standing to say, I want to be reheard. The same attorneys that had represented her in the original suit to, to enact Roe v. Wade had repented, and she had repented. She never aborted her child. And she was asking the Supreme Court to rehear her case because of one one clause. They had defined a baby as a fetus. And if that was not in the original case, if the baby had not been allowed to be called a fetus, 
then Roe v. Wade probably would have never been passed. Well, the Supreme Court finally rehears that after she dies, and they re- they re- reverse that decision, but they don't they don't completely reverse it and leave it as the law of the land. They hand it back to the states to figure out how they want to grapple with this issue. Yeah. And it's grappling with the definition of life more than it is the woman's right to choose. So right now, states are deciding whether they want to um, endorse abortion or not. Now, here's the problem with this. In Scripture, if you slay an innocent person, the penalty is a life for a life. So we have... um, about 150 million abortions in the earth that have happened since the 60s at the leadership of the United States. That's half the population if God required a life for a life. Wow. I got a word from God that's pretty powerful, pretty troubling, and it's constant. I'm in constant prayer mode over it that... I, I was rejoicing over Roe v. Wade being struck down, thinking, finally, Jesus, I, I live to see something reversed. Right. At the same time, I'm very, I'm very concerned about the woman in distress, and the idea of a woman's right to choose has some legitimacy. It's a legitimate concern. We need to help someone in distress. You know, and that kind of decision making when you're in that position it's hard to make the right decisions so the law shouldn't tell you what to do either we we should help someone in distress figure out what's the best thing for them to do with god's help instead we have alienated the body of christ from this argument because we've fought for the right to life and we've not understood the morality of it the the heart that goes on what is it that causes a people to say a a, a baby is not a real life you know that's a heart problem before it's an abortion problem you know and so that goes back to the ancients Uh, some of the ancient uh, idolatry has this same attitude that well if you if you want me to bless your field then give me your child and sacrifice them that's the spirit of molech you know if you want to have blessings in your day if you want to have all the dreams that you desire then give me your children you know and don't worry you can have another one when you're ready you know, well, that disregard for God's gift that he sent to the womb is a very, very massive indictment on the land because it sheds innocent blood on the land. So I would submit to you that almost the whole land has become defiled from that perspective. You know, whether you agree with abortion or not, the shedding of innocent blood defiles the land. Yes. You know? All right. So even if you think that's the right to choose and that's, that ought to be the way it is, then you're going to have to grapple with the fact that you just shed innocent blood on the land. So now you're going to have to deal with God's principles. You know? So even if we justify it with a law that becomes the, a constitutional um, right to give the woman that benefit, then we're going to have to deal with what God's response is when we defile the land on purpose and he doesn't like it. You know, 
That doesn't mean he's mean about it. It means that we lose the principles in the earth that God set in motion is if you defile the land, you lose the land. You lose the right to steward over it when you don't take care of it. Oh, boy. So we're going to either go into slavery, we're going to either cease to exist, or we're going to be driven from our land. Because we have purposely chosen to let the whole land become defiled. And God has given us one more window of repentance by striking down Roe v. Wade and throwing it back to the states. Right now we are in a boundary drawing season where the states that choose to uphold life are going to set a boundary for God's protection. And the states that choose to call a fetus a fetus and and murder it if they want to are going to draw a boundary for destruction. And where you live is going to be very, very important in the days ahead. Because what you're seeing about China and Russia and these other countries, it's not because they're our enemy that troubles us. It's because God's going to move against those that shake their fist at him. And if a state shakes their fist at God and says, in this boundary that we have, we're going to do whatever we want, that's going to come under a judgment at some point in the near future. And most or all of the people there may cease to exist, some way, somehow. That's profound. Um, I think we're going to have, I think what Dudeman actually saw was, was this. He didn't see, I don't remember him saying anything about abortion, but I think he actually saw the destruction of Russia and China invading our country and others probably also. Well, why does God allow that? Why would he remove his protection of our boundaries? Because we set a boundary against him. That's right. Well, he was told it was was because of bloodshed of the innocent. Idolatry. That's right. So, so he was calling out the issue of abortion before he even knew what abortion was in the law. Right. And what that is is that saying that if you decide the wrong way on this, you're going to draw a boundary that's going to one day be a boundary of destruction. You know that warning came in '84, uh, almost 40 years ago. And there's others that you know. let every word be established about the two or three witnesses saw similar things happening. And uh, Dimitri said, God, if this is you, where is this in the Bible? And he said, tell my people to read Revelation 18. And I think he said, go read Jeremiah 51, 1 through 9. And uh, it's up on the website, handofhelp.com. But I looked it up the other day. And over there in Jeremiah, it talks about uh, God will allow men like caterpillars to invade the land and they shall raise up a shout against it. And I'm thinking, is that what's happening right now at the southern border? 10,000 people coming in a day? Six million have come in so far. If you can get to the border, they'll let you through, give you a uh, prepaid debit card, cell phone, and they'll send you on a bus to uh, a refuge city. And uh, are we literally under the judgment of God Right now, I believe we are. We got to repent, or we're in trouble. Yeah, and I mean, we're just keeping track of the southern border, but we got a northern border that has the exact same numbers or more, oh, and boy. nobody's paying attention to it. It's not even in the news. Well, you got a point about that. I've got one more bonus question to ask you. I know I've taken you over time. 
We're going to get you back if you'd like to come on, and I'll give you the mic just to preach on anything the Holy Spirit gives you. I want to go back to that issue of uh, financial slavery for a moment. And uh, I did hear a testimony where you had went into a church and uh, testimony of a lady who had been swindled on a car purchase and had had been debt-free pretty much. Now she was in economic slavery. And uh, right. how y'all got her out of that? I keep hearing every, every week, Brother Timothy, that uh, major credit card indebtedness across America uh, at usurious rates, you know, these credit card companies are charging... 20-something percent on many of the cards. Indebtedness everywhere. Uh, Bankruptcies. Uh, Financial system crashing. If a person finds himself right now in financial slavery, how do you get out of that and move from becoming a slave to the lender to being free of that again? Uh, It starts with repentance first, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I should I should repent for debt the same way I would repent for volunteering to allow my house to be enslaved. And is there a road back? Uh, can people get uh, get free, or, or are you going to remain a slave? Because what if you dig a hole so deep? How do you dig back out? Well, God's answer to this is complicated because we've not been following his plan for a while, so it takes a little bit of effort to figure out how to navigate it back. Uh, I can appeal to God for help, and I think he'll deliver me, but that's not enough. I need I need all of God's people to be delivered, so we've got to change our ways, and we've got to start doing things a little more, with more wisdom. We've also got to understand what God wants to do about these problems. So here's the main problem with debt is usually distress. Uh, generally, I've got something that's distressing me. I can't figure out how to fix it. I don't have enough means in my savings account to fix it, so I go into debt. To, to fix that solution, you know, and and thinking, well, this is manageable, and the, the bank loves it because they're not going to loan you enough to bankrupt you. They're going to loan you enough to be able to afford the payment. You know? Well, once I choose that, it gets worse. Every time I'm in distress, that becomes my default. And so it becomes a lifetime of debt. I never can seem to get out of it because eventually all I can do is manage my payments every month. I, I can't get out of it. Well, eventually you have a level of distress that exceeds your payments, and then you're bankrupt, or then you're repossessed. You know? But it's also a problem of, of wanting something now that I need to wait till later. You know, sometimes people just want to satisfy their desire right now, so they buy something with debt that they could buy a couple of years later if they just saved up a little bit and then did it with some wisdom, you know. And so uh, uh, it's a complicated problem. But the overall issue, uh, this is probably be a good topic to take up next time, is that we don't understand God's rules for inheritance. You know? Yes. So look at this. In Scripture... God not only gave every person in the Israelite nation who had covenant with him. I want you to think of them not as having this benefit just because they were Israelites, but because they made covenant with God, he showed them the spot on the earth that he wanted them to inherit, and he secured their boundaries for them. And he gave every man, woman, and child a peaceful habitation where they could have an encounter with him. 
and a livelihood for what they were created for. So he brings the earth and a person he creates into marriage, and and they resonate with one another. So whatever is in your spot on the earth where God plants you resonates with what he created you for. So all the resources that you need to do what he created you for are going to be found in that spot. But we have not asked God where our inheritance is, understanding that it's a spot on the earth that he wants for me. We go out and we buy whatever house we want, whatever we can afford, wherever we want it. We take a job wherever we want it. We have planned our own way, and then we ask God to bless it. Instead of saying, God, I want to have covenant with you, and then I want you to tell me where I was created and where I belong, and then help me to obtain whatever you desire me to have the way you want me to get it. So most people, if they're living in a city right now, even if they're a believer and they're a member of a great church and they're living their life as as righteously as they know how, there's still a great possibility that they're not living in the spot that God created on the earth for them. Because we simply haven't understood that God wants to do this for us. And we read it in Scripture that he did it for the Israelites, and we don't understand that they were God's first fruit. They were the example of how he does things. So if every nation, people, group on the earth called out to him the same way, he would show them where their place in the earth is and where their boundaries are that he wants them to have, and he would bring that down to every man, woman, and child. And then the problem is, If someone disrupts my inheritance, if they take it away from me, or if I come under distress, he wired right into his plan a way to deliver me from that distress. So he created the barley harvest in the ancient world as a way to deliver the poor from their poverty. They were to reap the barley harvest, which was the first fruit crop of the grain, And they set their calendar based upon the first fruit being ripe and ready to reap. So that means that the day I reap a benefit for the poor is the day I get a reset for my calendar. So now I know what day it is for the rest of the year. Wow. And that keeps that keeps me in the perfect will of God because now I can keep these times and seasons and the appointments and the festivals that God has planned. But then I bring my barley and I heap it into sheaves and I give it as a wafer offering to God and I heap it in sheaves in the marketplace and the poor are allowed to go and get barley. That is not so they can just have food to eat. That's allow them to that allows them to go get seeds so they can return to their inherited field and restore their fortunes. We don't know how to do that on a society level today, so we create welfare instead. Or we despise the poor and we give them a sack lunch and we don't ever give them seed to plant their own field and we won't even let them have the field that God gives to them. Somebody else is running it. You know. So we, we, we have used debt to buy things that we shouldn't buy most of the time, and we've not understood how to ask God for what he has already provided for us that we should steward over. And in the stewardship of the earth, I will see the blessings that God has given to me. The Native American people, for the most part, almost every tribe in North America had an understanding of stewardship. And we taught them a different system. We we came here as uh, 
searchers and explorers, and then we decided we liked the land, and we took it from them because we thought we could own it instead of steward it. And right now, I I, I know I've been testing this with a lot of places where I've gone to speak. I've just been asking people for a show of hands, and so far the percentage is about about nine out of ten Christians that I've asked – either don't know where their inheritance is or they know the spot they're living in now is not their inheritance. And it's off the charts how many people don't know where God actually wants them to live, but they're trying to dwell somewhere and prosper somewhere and praying for God's blessings on somewhere, you know, and and expecting God to bless them immensely on a spot that he probably has given to someone else. Oh, my goodness. That describes me and my whole family. <laughs> yeah. Well, that God describes 90% of us. <laughs> Lord Jesus, have mercy. So uh, the thing that's interesting is when he brought Israel out of Egypt or out of slavery and bondage, he he settled them in their inheritance. He just didn't send them to a safe spot to live. He settled them on a spot on the earth that he said, this is yours, and I'll protect it for you as long as you stand covenant with me and don't defile it. But if you defile the land, you lose the land. Now, again, this innocent bloodshed is a real, real big deal. Even if I've not committed abortion, you know, if I'm not guilty of that sin myself, but I've allowed it in my city, then I may be subject to the judgment that comes for it. Yeah. And the, we, we, we're, in, we're under a standing indictment, I believe, at heaven. And I think um, enemies of God might be the Chinese, might be the Russians, but I think lots of them are Christians too, so it may not be them, but some other nation, some other enemy of God is going to invade at some point the the land of the free. And we're going to be, we're going to see people fall, I believe, if they're living and dwelling in an area that has drawn a boundary that's in opposition to God. Big time. It's a big, important issue. And um, now I, I dealt with, you know, the, the widow you, you mentioned, she was an African-American lady. And it was appalling to me. It broke my heart to see African-Americans rejoicing over a widow in debt because she got a car, you know, instead of rejoicing over freedom. Yeah. Right. I couldn't believe it. No. And when I pointed that out, they all were shocked that at themselves, you know. And then the truth came out. Well, most of them were rejoicing because they weren't having to give her rides anymore. They weren't having to suffer a little bit to help her get to church or get to the store or go pick up something or get, you know. And and so the giver, she she had very little, but what she had, she gave because she didn't have any debt. She was one of the best givers I've ever seen. She was living on a very small percentage of what she actually got until she got that debt. And when she got the debt, there's no way that God's people should have been rejoicing over that. You know, when I pointed that out, at first it was we need to repent as the body of Christ because we've allowed a widow to come under more distress. You know? 
And then let's go deal with the wicked guy. But first, let's deal with it in the house. You know? And I simply asked her, I said, why didn't you come to the church and, and tell everybody here that you needed a car? Well, she did that. You know, She did that. But no one gave her a car. Instead, they rejoiced over her going into debt to get the car. And I think because we have stopped taking care of the widows and the orphans and the poor the way God wants, they go to the bank to get help. Or they go to the wicked in the city to get help. And we're supposed to be heaping up the barley in some way so that they don't have to suffer as, you know, I mean, there's temporary distress, but there's a solution for it in the scriptures if we would just follow God's plans. Yeah. Brother, I, want you I don't to know come what back. the barley looks like for everybody today. I mean, not everybody grows barley, but there's something that God has in every city that would deliver the poor from poverty, not wow. just give them a meal, but deliver them from poverty. Yeah. I never thought about and it in those terms. Makes perfect sense now. Yeah, so uh, the problem when Jesus said you, the poor you have with you always, if you read that very carefully, it's not the same poor. Oh. Because if I'm following God's rule, I fixed the poor in my day, and next year we got some more that came into distress, and we fixed them again. You know, it's a solution to keep the people in perpetual prosperity, even if they have temporary disaster or distress. God has a way to help them through it. You know. Perpetual prosperity versus perpetual poverty. Right. So if, if if we see poverty in the land growing, it's because we're not following some benefits that God has prescribed in His Word. Oh man, what a great what a great teaching! I want you to come back and uh, talk about the inheritance more. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a subject that everybody needs to to grapple with and 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 get with God and answer for their own house. Brother Timothy, have you written any books on any subjects so, so far? Uh, I've got 18 books that I haven't published. Oh, wow. You better get <laughs> I'm, I'm busy. Waiting, I'm waiting for God to say you can publish them. <laughs> well, I'm going to pray because I'm ready to read some of those. Uh, do, you have a web, do you have a website or email or any other contact information people can uh, reach you at? Yeah, I've, I'm in remodel mode because my father died and I'm taking care of my mother, so my website is under construction. But I've got a bunch of stuff streaming on a couple of different websites. Uh, most of it is in relationship with places that I've gone to speak. So if you Google me, you can find me on seven or eight places where I've got a, a bundle of teaching that was done at, at a local ministry. I've got some stuff on YouTube. Um, I've got a website called Jubilee Covenant. And um, but I've got it under construction right now, and I'm I'm trying to pull everything that I've got out there from multiple places into one one spot where people can find it easier. And uh, I've just been under a little bit of a temporary dress because my my father died a few years ago, and I've got the care of my 93 year old mother, and uh, I, that's cut my um, my normal ministry time has been cut by about 80 or 90 percent. So I'm I'm working uh, slowly but surely to get all that re re up and going. And uh, you can still find those sites. I'm keeping them, but the, most of the stuff to get the content of them. Uh, what will be on my own site, you can you can find it, but you have to dig a little bit. And uh, some of them you have to register on another ministry site just to stream them for free. Uh, but 
I'm taking things that are already out there like that, and I'm moving it slowly over to YouTube. So um, I may put it on a, uh, another side as a backup because uh, YouTube has been pretty good to me. But I'm not. Uh, I've I've only got about. Uh, I don't forget the exact count, maybe 10 or 12 things there. And then I've got about 28 teachings that are streaming on YouTube um, and also on Patreon with Terry Spencer. And uh, that's under the Courts of Heaven uh, website. And uh, oh, that's if great. you just if you Google me, you'll find some people call me and say, I can't find anything. And then I'm like, well, dig a little bit. My name does come up, but it's usually – it usually doesn't come up directly with something you can stream. You got, you'll find a ministry where I spoke, and if you inquire of them, they've got my teaching available. And um, very few places charge for the teaching that I've given because I've asked them to make it available to people when they want it. And uh, so I'm going to send anyway, you a copy of uh, today's program. Use it any way you want. And um, well, we're looking at a whole new month. I want you to look at your schedule. Find me a date in July that works for you. Let's get another program going. It'd be an honor to have you back. All right. That'd be good. I'd, I'd love to, to take some time on this inheritance issue because yes. I think almost every Christian family out there needs to grapple with that issue right now. Brother, I'd love to learn about that. I got no teaching on that at all. I just know the verse. We're supposed to leave our grandkids an inheritance. I'm saying, what's up with that? Where's mine? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I better get busy, too. Um Brother Timothy, would you like to close us in prayer? Sure. Father, I just thank you for this time. I pray that this would be fruitful and beneficial for everybody that listens to it. And Jesus, all the things that we discuss that's troubling and and life-threatening, we we put them on your lap. And we just look you in the face as as your sons and daughters. We say, "What, what do you want to do about these things? Help us, O God. Save our children. Save your name. Your name is at stake. The wicked of the earth are mocking you and shaking their fist at you. And, and they want our lives and the lives of our children and our children's children. Answer them by stretching out your right hand. Only lift up your name and Bring the glory and the honor and the majesty and the power that is deserving to you. Bring it to you. We lift you up and ask you to draw all men unto you. We call you the King of Kings. We pray that you would rule over the heavens and the earth for the benefit of your name and also for the benefit of those that revere you. Search us, O God, if there be any wicked way in us, shine your light on it and help us. We desire to be more like you. Help us in our weaknesses. Help us in the places that we have stumbled and remove from us any sin, transgressions, or iniquity that keeps us from establishing your purposes and plans on the earth. Secure our households the boundaries of our nation and the boundaries of our city with your wall of fire. We pray that you would be merciful even to the wicked and that you would bless them as much as possible that they might turn their hearts to you. We ask you for their souls to be saved and redeemed that they might know you also. Do whatever you need to do to bring them to a place where they will bow their knee and call out to you also and answer them when they do. Help them when they do. 
nations. Father, I pray for the government of the nations of the earth that that they would stop making decisions on their own wisdom or on their own understanding, but turn their heart to appeal to you and then give them an answer how to make a better place for their people and how to let you be the king over the land. I pray for this broadcast that you would direct it now to the ears of whoever you want to listen in. You would just put your hand behind it, whatever you want to do with it. We submit it to you. We ask you to glorify your name with it in any way that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. I say amen to that. Brother Timothy, God richly bless you. Uh, one final question. If someone would like to support your ministry, is there any way they can do that? Yes, uh, I-A-M-T-I-M-O-T-H-Y at SBC Global, G-L-B, G, I'm sorry, G-L-O-B-A-L dot net. Give that out one more time. Spelled again. I am Timothy at SBC Global dot net. It's I-A-M T-I-M-O-T-H-Y at S-B-C-G-L-O-B-A-L dot net. You can send me a PayPal. You can link to my Zelly. You can do Cash App. Uh, or you can um, send me an email and I can direct you to a mailing address where you can send an offering any way you desire. Oh, that's great. I am Timothy at sbcglobal.net. Yep, I I I get uh, PayPal and um, Zelly works very well with that email. But some people want to send a check or want to use a credit card. If you have a desire to do anything that's not connected to the PayPal, Zelly, uh, uh, um, Cash App, or Venmo, then just send me an email and I'll respond back and give you an address. That is excellent. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes and I'll send you a copy later today. Uh, my friend, God bless you. Uh, thank you for coming on. It was an awesome uh, time with you, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Appreciate your patience and enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Folks, that was Timothy Bentz. I'm going to get that cut here in a few minutes and uh, get it uploaded for you. Please share this one with every place that you can. Whatever social media platform you're on, please repost this. Uh, you can get this program by going to our Podbean archive. Just go to omegamanradio.com, scroll down. You'll see our main Podbean archive, omegaman.podbean.com. You'll be able to download it, uh, forward a link to anybody you want, and get this out far and wide. Uh, what a amazing guy. Um, and there's a lot more where that comes from. We're going to get him back on. I'll go ahead and ask him to get us a date for July, and uh, we will definitely have him back on. Also, if you enjoyed hearing him, please write him. You can also support his ministry via that email. I'll put it up in the show notes. I am Timothy at sbcglobal.net. And um, I'm going to call this one tonight, Healing History and Iniquities on the Land, taking the very words that he spoke tonight for that title. Um, well, praise the Lord. It was a, it was an awesome time to be with you tonight. We had uh, Dr. Jonathan Hansen and Timothy Bentz, excuse me, 
Brother Tom Mack could not be with us tonight, but he will be back again next week. Have a great weekend out there. I've already uploaded two episodes of the Reloaded podcast. They're there for you right now. And I'll get these two shows uploaded here in just a minute. Father God, in Jesus' name, thank you for this opportunity to do these programs tonight and this week. Thank you for everybody tuned in. For your favor, bless everyone, God, as we go into the weekend. We plead the blood of Jesus over us all and ask God that you surround us all with your warrior angels. In Jesus Christ's mighty name, amen. Friends, I uh, love and appreciate you. Go check out OmegaManRadio.com. And also, if you're not on my Substack, uh, get over there and sign up for it. It's free. And uh, I'll put out uh, different um, text through that uh, that you may want to look at or videos or um, other news articles, updates, etc. That's where I post them. Okay, that's it. God bless you all. And uh, we'll see you again Monday, God willing.